This is a conspiracy. That's what this is. One big damn conspiracy! And everyone's in on it! I know what's going on. Did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Did you see the memo about this? Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. Don't you see what this means? Today I have a guest appearance on Operation Red Pill, where I join Jason and Christopher to talk all about things Australian when it comes to the satanic control matrix. Now, for those listeners of mine who've never heard this before, this is a great one to get your feet wet, dip your toes in the pool as we speak. It's all about a matrix of control based on demonic influence, satanic mind control, and the coming new world order. These guys break it down really well for what's happening in society today. And realistically, this was just an episode where we could talk about Australia and give our own country a bit of a focus, where everyone seems to think it's all about the United States. Unfortunately, this is a global agenda, as we all seem to know now after the past couple of years, where it's not just the US, it's Canada, it's Australia, it's South Africa, it's the UK, it is absolutely everywhere. This thing is being rolled out behind the scenes, sometimes even in plain sight. Anyway, sit back, grab a coffee, put your feet up, relax, and enjoy this episode. This is Operation Red Pill. You know us, just two guys going beyond conspiracy theories, taking you right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host, Christopher Dean. Good day, mate. Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. Down under the Satanic Control Matrix with Drew Missing. You've heard us talk about the Satanic Control Matrix before, but have you ever wondered if it just was an American thing or is the SMC a global reality? We'll get into that and more with Drew Missing from Missing the Point Podcast coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. Ladies, gentlemen, everyone from across the podverse, welcome back to another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we like to take you beyond conspiracy theories and get right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. This episode promises to be what I think is going to be a classic. We get into a lot of good stuff today, including what is the satanic control matrix and how is it being rolled out globally, especially down under? Are movies and streaming services doubling down on their agenda? And finally, given that we live in an age of spin, how can we trust the Bible? 
Before we get into all of that, though, you know how we do around here. We got to take care of first things first. And that means welcoming my co-host, Christopher Dean. How's it going, bro? Oh, man, I'm doing good. How about yourself? Not bad. Not bad. I am pumped for this episode for sure. Bro, I thought it was just me because I'm feeling a little bit of tingliness in the air. The energy is hot right now. We have got a guest coming up that I'm not sure if they're outside our league. They may actually be. Yeah. I don't say that much, Christopher. You know me. I'm a conversationalist. Mm-hmm, right? You are. Yeah. I, I can I can engage with the best of them. That you can. Very few people make me have to upshift okay. in conversation. Typically, I cruise or downshift. Right, right. Listening to this person that we're about to have on the show, I listened to one of their episodes before, and I generally feel like I'm going to have to skip shift a gear or two. Yeah, no doubt. Right? I'm going to have to like really bring it, and I'm nervous. Because Well, you know that we kind of listen to our shows, right? Yeah, we the, do. To, to kind of watch watch the game, right? Where can we improve? Right. And I found that when I get asked difficult questions, my brain stalls out a little bit. And it makes it makes this sound that actually escapes my lips. And I can't stand it. What sound is that? But you'll ask me a question, I'll be like, I'm like, oh, what is that? I hear that a lot. Is that I, what that is? Yeah, I didn't know. I heard it. I listened to our show. I was like, why is my brain doing that? I thought you were buffering. <laughs> I didn't know that there was some sort of external processing going on for, for it's like inter- I'm grinding gears, right, is what it exactly. is in the brain. The thing that terrifies me about our guest is that he never does that. Every time he's asked a question, it sounds like he has been waiting. For you to ask him this question, because the answer is just right there. That's that crazy. In, that's intimidating. A little bit. And for me, you know, being a, a linguist, I pay close attention to, to word usage. Mm-hmm. I pay close attention to how people structure their sentences. And I've heard him actually structure these sentences. I was like, I would have to sit down and type that out for a minute. And this seems like it was done on the fly. And I'm like, nah, I'm getting a little concerned about my ability to keep up here. Yeah. But we we prayed. We did. We, we talked to the Lord. <laughs> we said, give us what we need because we don't want to come off as, as idiots. <laughs> you, know, you know how we talk about how our brains work a little bit differently? Mm-hmm. Like you're a little bit more like a semi and right. I'm like a motorcycle. And, you know, I was thinking that. And Does I kind of like a helicopter. Stude's like that alien tic tac that was chasing down the, the destroyers off the coast of California. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> The heat just I don't made know where a 90 degree, 3,000 mile an hour turn. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> well, I guess we can give up on trying to keep up, right? We just yeah. gonna be along for the ride. Well, and, and outside all of that, like this dude has got a a movie podcast segment. He has he's an educator, so he has an education segment, and he's from Australia, so he has a, a different look on the whole world. He is tailor made to be a guest on the show. That's why we got him. We got him. So with all that said, Christopher, help me welcome Drew Missing from Your Missing the Point podcast. Drew, how's it going, man? Good, guys. How you going? Awesome, man. It is so good to have you with us. Yeah, finally good to make this happen. Right? And you are coming to us all the way from Australia. This is a different time zone. Matter of fact, it's a different day. Yeah, in the land of tomorrow. Right? He's the man from tomorrow. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about this one. I got questions, man. What's the stock market doing? Uh, I can give you the lottery <laughs> numbers. That's about as, as good as I can do. Uh, we'll take those. <laughs> 12, 17, 92, 33, and 5. You know, wouldn't you be freaked out if that got us a few billions? 
<laughs> I'd be asking for a little bit personally. Right, right. I, I think 10% might be, we, we can work out something. You could, you could swing 10%, sure. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> oh, that's funny, man. Drew, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself and where they, they can contact you and reach you. Yeah, sure. I'm Drew Missing from your Missing the Point podcast. You can reach me on DrewMissing88 at Gmail if you want to send me a message through there. You find me on Instagram under Missing the Point and on all the usual podcatchers. I'm also connected with two other podcasts. I've got a Conspiracy Theatre 3000 podcast with Moral Bob and Andy Rouse where we break down all the standard cinema movies for symbolism and esotericism and anything conspiracy related really. Um, especially a lot of the 80s stuff and 90s, things that we look back at now and we actually can see that type of um, infiltration just popping out of it now, which in the day we didn't really see as kids or young fellas. And now it just seems so blatant after having our eyes opened. And then my last podcast that I started recently is uh, The Homeroom Educating Educators, where my co-host is a mother that homeschools. And as most listeners will know me, I'm a government school teacher. So we try to tackle the education system and how we can help either families opt out of the government system, or if you do have to have your kids in that system, how you can help them in their education. Oh, I mean, that's dope. That is a lot on your plate. Yeah. It's um, started off as one little thing and kind of snowballed into multiple others. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how podcasts tend to do that. Uh, we're trying to keep ours kind of self-contained because it's like, it seems like it takes on a life of their own. Smart. Very smart. <laughs> But I'm I'm equally excited for all the different things that you're doing. Like as we talk about movies on this podcast. So when you when I heard that you were doing the Conspiracy Theater 3000, I was like, oh, that's excellent. And then I already liked your your normal show. And then you have uh, the the homeroom. And my son is two years old, and we're looking to homeschool. I was like, this guy is just putting out all the content that I want. That's pretty sweet. Perfect. Likewise, I love the, the stuff that you guys do with Marvel, and I heard. I initially heard you guys through um, Monday Night Master Debaters, and that's how I found you, and I saw your work that you've done with Cosmic Peach in the past, and really fantastic stuff you're doing, guys. Really appreciate your work. Thanks. That's awesome, man. Thank you. I just heard your episode on how Australians lost their guns. Yeah, Port Arthur. Yeah, and I'm putting that lost in quotations because you make a point to to really stress the fact that you didn't lose it the way most Americans think of it. Yeah. Man, the detail in that episode both amazed me and freaked me out because I'm looking at what's happening in our culture and I'm like, this seems like a textbook style play. And it's worked in Australia and it's working in Canada and I see them trying it here in the United States and I'm like, man, people better wake up to the fact that they have perfected the technique it's it's curtailed to the environment that it's deployed within, but they are not accidentally doing these steps. These steps are intentional. And I'm like, if anybody yeah. hasn't heard this episode, go get it. Yeah, Port Arthur was, was just the, uh, it is the template for what I think they tried to roll out across the world. And a couple of things happened in Australia at that point where it just seemed to work. The timing was perfect. It was the 90s before mm -hmm. big internet was everywhere. So people couldn't just easily identify and see the things that were happening. And I think they tried to roll that exact same type of a, a template out in America multiple times unsuccessfully. Right. It hasn't Unfortunately, worked. With, yeah, it hasn't worked. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of collateral damage. The American citizens that are caught up in that, but 
I, you can't help but not see it once you know what their what their cards are in the game. Right, and I, mm-hmm. uh, what's really concerning me is that with each attempt, they seem to adjust. They kind of have that what I call the Tony Stark uh, syndrome, which is they <laughs> learn from their mistakes and they, they come build back. New suits. <laughs> right, they do. They they build a new campaign based off of the last one with changes to it, and unfortunately, we seem to fall for it. You know, a little bit each time without realizing this is the same thing repackaged slightly different. Yeah, and the danger is the technology is getting better. That, like, we know that the military industrial complex generally has technology 30 to 40 years in advance of what the civilian world has. But the danger is what all of a sudden seeing a lot of this um, AI generated video, film, voice, pictures. How long is it until they pick a a patsy from a conspiracy podcast, hopefully not one of us, and then put out some kind of media of you being the perpetrator of a massive shooting. You would think yeah. when when Facebook started to roll out deep fakes that people would have Ooh, been yeah. like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. In fact, I think deep fakes somehow caught on with the, the porn industry and people were like, oh, this is a good application. This, this, will, this will spice up the collection. <laughs> and I'm like, nobody thought that this could be a dry run, no pun intended, <laughs> for really what they want to do, where they could perfect their, their technology and then actually implement this in a non-pornographic sense, you know, actually implement it wide-scale mainstream. Like, how will you know that when they say the president of the United States is talking that it's really him? Exactly. Well, if you look at the the rollout of selfies, selfies has become a big thing in the past 20 years, Snapchat Mm -hmm. filters. All that's doing is mapping every single inch of your face. Every time you record a video, it's downloading and recording the cadence of your voice, the tone, the pitch, everything they could perfectly give you a a really convincing model of you doing something you never said. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you listen to OBDM at all, our Big Dumb Mouth podcast, but they recently did one on there with Joe's voice and it sounded identical to his speaking voice. Like he really was saying something that he wasn't saying. Wow. Now they used a similar technology in the motion picture film, uh, Top Gun Maverick in order to, to allow Val Kilmer's character to speak. And while I was blown away at the, at the capability of the technology, the applications really concerned me. Because you wouldn't have known that that wasn't him talking. And I think they use combinations of artificial intelligence technology and his, his, his child, his son, and actually combine this with his prior work in order to build a working model of his voice, his cadence, his inflections, all of that, so that we, the audience, couldn't tell the difference. They yeah, they it. did something similar with Star Wars recently where they've had Mark Hamill's face and voice overlaid on a body double and in a lot of ways you could quite you couldn't quite tell whether it was him at times mm-hmm. like you knew it wasn't really mark hamill but it worked well enough to drive a story so if that's what they're giving us in media what's really behind the closed doors of what they can actually apply right yeah it's kind of what dave Chappelle calls the age of spin you know you really don't know what is true your generation lives in the most difficult time in human history this is the age of spin. The age where nobody knows what they're even looking at. Did you know that Planned Parenthood was for abortions? It's for people that don't plan things out at all. That's right. So a guy your age doesn't really know how he feels. 
Choice are you pro-choice? Are you anti-consequences? What does it all really mean? I couldn't agree anymore. Um, even like you take this type of technology out of the equation, for the longest time I've always thought, like you watch the news, right? Everyone watches the news. Mm-hmm. You can believe it or not, whatever. How do you know those news stories you're watching are actually true? Someone dies in a car accident in five states away or someone um, commits a mass murder. How do you know those are real events? You don't know the people. You haven't seen it firsthand. Right. Reality is only what's being given to us, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the news has been busted uh, here several times for they'd talk about a mass shooting or whatever. And the the actual uh, footage that they presented to everyone was from, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was like an annual um, machine gun uh, like swap or whatever. It, it wasn't hostile at all. They were just shooting down range, but it sounds like this this horrible shooting. Yeah, they were able to use like benign footage as B-roll. Mm-hmm. And yeah, actually, fill the the visual narrative that was complementary to the actual narrative they were they were trying to sell. Even with well, even with the uh, Groundhog's Day, did you hear about that, Jason? No, what happened? <laughs> they, it was it wasn't this past Groundhog's Day. It was the year before. There, uh, I don't know if they just had scheduling issues with the Groundhog or whatever. <laughs> but but they used like footage from four years in the past, and in the footage there was a bunch of snow. But in reality, there wasn't any. It hadn't snowed for like a week, so people were like, "Well, this this isn't our groundhog. What what is this from?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, we made a mistake. We got the." I mean, so if they're willing to really, yeah, to lie about Groundhog's Day, I mean, come on, they're lying about everything then. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. I'm I'm convinced every now and again I'll see a news story that's from three or four years ago, and they're just regurgitating it because they need to fill a time slot. Mm-hmm. But. All this stuff we're seeing, we saw it in Ukraine, like with the supposed war that's going on. When mm. you start rolling out Call of Duty footage as the ghost of Kiev, you're really scraping Whoa. the barrel to get a war going, aren't you? Wait, wait, they really did that? Yeah, the fighter jet footage of the ghost of Kiev who was taking yeah. out all the Russian fighters was from a video game. Shut up. Wow. <laughs> that Shut I didn't know. Up. Me neither. You know, it's interesting. My, 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 uh, my older sister... Before we started this podcast, uh, she and I would talk about various things. And now we've gotten 45 episodes into the show and she's listened to each one. She's moved from, "Ah, you sound a little bit more conspiratorial to I don't trust nothing. (laughs) You know, like I'll ask her a question like, did you see this? She's like, "Mm, I'm not buying. I think we had a a situation where uh, NFL player had had fallen ill on the field and uh they had to rush him off. I think it was the uh, Bills. I can't remember the player's name. But I was talking to her about it a couple days ago. She was like, mm, it has the staging look to me. It just looks staged. <laughs> I was like, he's in the hospital. You think it's staged? She was like, I don't put anything past these people no more. They could tell me the world was coming apart. And I'd be like, mm, I think this is staged. <laughs> you think that's staged, Volcano? You think that's staged, Magma? They imported that. That definitely looks staged to me. <laughs> Well, there was the, there's this interesting thing that's happened in the culture since COVID. And I remember growing up and it was normal conversation that, like you were saying, Drew, uh, the government's got technology 40, 50 years ahead of us. You know, we'd say things like all, all politicians lie. And it seemed like just known things, right? Like this is the way of the world. And then COVID happened and no politicians are lying and no, they don't have this technology, you know, that's, that's ahead of what we have. I was like, what happened to all that stuff that we just accepted as normal? And now all of a sudden, none of it's true. A weird 
shift in, in, in the cultural mind. Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Easily I, I have been syndrome. saying that. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. It's amazing how susceptible all of us, not just, you know, people out there. I don't want to use the, the cloak, the, the, the term sheeple, because I think all of us fall victim in one, one way or another to this fairly complex and dynamic narrative that we're constantly being told ad nauseum, right? But it's interesting to see these the cognitive shift that has happened, not just over decades, but like you were saying, Christopher, pretty immediate, especially with the, the things that happened with COVID. Like it would seem like things shifted gears and there was a willingness to believe the narrative, which I think is more dangerous than just having a false narrative. When you have a public that wants to believe it, if you have a public that has grown desensitized to truth, but also has grown not only anemic, but even allergic to truth, that's a problem. And Mm -hmm. that motivator the whole time was fear, right? Fear is a powerful motivator. Extremely. They did a a fantastic job with it, right? They, They showed us pictures of people dropping dead in the streets of China and falling over and collapsing and then... There was the death counter on the news every day. That was ramping up fear. And it was to the point where people were questioning the validity of what was coming out of China, like China was having a conspiracy around it, but they weren't questioning their own government's approach to things. Interesting, isn't it? It's like the problem could be over there and it's not here. But if we're all connected, if this is a global network, a global community, then the problem over there is eventually the problem over here. There's not much space and distance between here and there. In fact, we this our 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 planet works very hard at mitigating the distance between here and there to the point that it's pretty instantaneous. Like right now, we're talking to you in Australia, the other side of the world, right? This is a pretty small world now. Yet there still seems to be this cognitive dissonance. When it comes to the idea that we're interconnected and problems that are focused at humanity affects all of humanity, not just that segment. Yeah, people think to just seem to be very insular and very center focused and forget about that we all in some way are interconnected, right? Especially mm-hmm. thanks to globalism. And before globalism, it was called Americanization. Like we were taught that in high school as Australians, that Americanization was taking the world and Within a small time frame, we quickly flipped to it being globalism, like it was Americanism at the time, and then it became globalism because America was a bad thing because of what was happening in the Middle East. I was going to oh, say, but, uh, yeah. if Americanism was taken over, it was not taken over here in America. <laughs> no. Yeah, we did not have Americanism. We had all sorts of other stuff we were dealing with. Yeah, you got all the ists and isms going on over there, you poor buggers. Right. So I mean I would have I would have appreciated them telling me that they were exporting <laughs> Americanisms. Right? I would have tried to get in on that, make sure that we had some proper representation. Right, right. But I, I tell you what, what what this does show, this this really shows the coordinated effort of power elites to not only be able to control the narrative, but to work within what we call on, on this this platform on our show a matrix of control and that matrix of control is not restricted just to the United States. It is a global matrix of control. And 
it's for, for people who are not familiar with the concept of a satanic control matrix, this matrix is a system of control that's broken down into three primary sectors. You have individual control, then you have social or nationalistic control, and then finally you have absolute totalitarian control over the entire planet. And on the individual level, oftentimes what is used is the educational system to begin to indoctrinate a person into this system of thinking, right? And with that, people begin to get exposed to occult ideas. They get exposed to idealistic uh, philosophies that are normally nationalistically based. They get exposed to social reengineering protocols. A lot of things happen within the four walls of school that we don't realize, and that takes a citizen and makes them pliable for sector two, which is the the social control. And that happens that happens through news. It happens through entertainment. It happens through big tech. It's basically the platform that permits mind control on a mass scale. And that has the commensurate effect of allowing a person to become a global citizen, a cog within sector three, which is overall control. That's where they're using the deep state. They're using the deep church. They're using the deep occult to actually influence a system of control that is absolute and without question. And we're seeing this being rolled out over the entire planet and implemented in different regions in a very customized way, but in a way to direct towards a very specific aim. And that is the embracing of Satanism in a one world government under the cloak of, of globalism. And it's an extremely alarming system of control that we see. Because with that comes the, a, 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 what the Bible would call a unified religion. And we're seeing behind the scenes the people who are financing this, which are Khazarians uh, and Kabbalists, admittedly, actually pushing the Kabbalah as the, the fundamental religion behind the globalist regime. Right. These are the things that even at the higher upper levels of Catholicism are being pushed. This is why we're seeing things like the coexist movement. This is why we're seeing a Jesuit put at the head of the Catholic Church and beginning to direct people who are looking to the Catholic Church as though it is the 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 shining beacon of Christianity. And using that platform that they get in the the press that they get from Christianity as a justification for ideas that are, that are extremely hostile to Christianity. Right. And it's giving yeah, th- a, things that are against the doctrine in a lot of times. Right. And nobody's really questioning it. That's just, the, it's just the way that, you know, religions are supposed to evolve and change over time. It's that new world approach. Of course, it's going to get better over time. Come on. Right. Right. I'm, I'm looking for that. Like, <clears throat> just like my iPhone improves every year. If we could get Christianity iOS 14, <laughs> you know, this, this would be pretty dope. But that's not the way God intended it. It was it was mm-hmm. dope from the beginning, and we keep getting reiterations of degradation. Well, there's even yeah, that like, could, well, I was going to say, Chris, that, go ahead, Drew. <laughs> sorry, mate. Um, yeah, that control matrix you're talking about, you're so right. And I actually view that as being a Venn diagram where all three of those things are operating in unison all at the same time. 
ironically, to come together as that, like you said, the end goal is new world under it, or new world order under Satanism, right? Mm-hmm. It's a Venn diagram, all these moving parts are happening at the same time, but they're coalescing to a single point. And I think we're seeing that more now than ever. I think things have ramped up so quickly within the past five or 10 years, uh, even just on a standard social level. The world we live in now is not the world we lived in 20 years ago at all. Yo, I was right. trying to explain that just to to one of my parents. I think I was talking to my mother, and I'm like, yo, 40 today is not 40 when you were 40. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's not the same 40. Mm-hmm. You can skate at your 40. You cannot skate at this one. I was like, mom, when you went out dating, you were quite sure you were dating a man, weren't you? She was like, yeah. I said, nowadays, if you want to date a woman, you got to check and make sure she got OEM parts. <laughs> she was like, what? I was like, I'm trying to tell you this is not the same world. You got to check under the hood. You got to. And not even for the not even for the way that like society would push you, like, you know, test it out before you get there. You don't even have to test. I just need to see your manufacture date. I need to make sure that you started out the same way as you present yourself. Because the world of spin is crazy. And, you know, yeah, we've, we've seen a, a we've seen an exponential ramping and it's not going to stop unless the church takes its rightful position and really begins to stand against the religious backing of these political agendas. Unfortunately, here in the States, we have this idea of separation of church and state. And I was telling Christopher one time it, it amuses me that as much as we push the idea of separation of church and state, if we look in scripture and we look at the, the final book, what I call the special, special effects book of the Bible, which is Revelation. In Revelation, what you actually get is a merging of church and state. It tells you that the final order will not be a separation, but a merging of the two, which means they're not as isolated as we're being told. And so the political agendas that we see being espoused on, on TV and in mainstream media, really have a spiritual backing behind them. They have a religious catalyst that we should do well to to find out what it is and pay attention to that. And until the church collectively, I think, steps up and begins to address that, and then society at large begins to resist unwelcome control, this won't change. I think for that to happen, you almost need to take back the church in a lot of ways that the more and more Christians I see coming out, and I'm only on my my journey of faith now. This is brand new to me. I was born and raised a non-practicing Protestant, but over the past couple of years, I'm, I'm finding faith more and more. But from the outside looking in, the majority of Christians I'm seeing now are Christians who don't actually attend a physical church. Mm. They're seeing a lot of corruption and people being co-opted within these organizations like you mentioned the catholic church is a big one but i and that's very obvious but i don't think it's just limited to the catholic church i think anywhere where there's a human being that has a a level of power and influence and human beings being what we are we can be influenced for good or evil very easily and that's what we have to be mindful of at the same time Mm -hmm. I, i would agree I think the the 501c3 corporation aspect of the church is also very detrimental. That it's so important to be, you know, a nonprofit or to have people's tithes and donations uh, a tax deduction that you're actually surrendering your voice for truth to whatever propaganda the government tells you you're allowed to say. And that's that's not what the church is supposed to do. 
No, not at all. And even tithing, to my understanding, was originally all the other 11 tribes were tithing to the to one tribe. And I don't think the intention was ever for tithing to actually be a part of church. I think it's the idea that church is a place where people congregate and gather as good Christians and um, be around each other and spread the word to one another. It's not a place where you collect revenue and and then distribute it based on a, a politician's influence or a social influence. Right, right. Yeah, it was actually designed to be able to meet the needs of society. Yes. And those needs are are greater than just financial. While that's a component, necessary uh, aspect, there are so many other things that we need. And I think, Christopher, you, you hit it just a moment ago. Um, we really have a need for truth. And there's that great saying that the only thing necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. I'm starting to think that the only way that a lie can prevail is for no one to want to tell the truth. Oh, that's good. I like that. Cool. So we were talking about <laughs> revenue a moment ago. If, you know, I just need 5% on that on the back end and I should be okay. I should be able to make it. <laughs> well, like Drew was saying, that's Old Testament stuff. You don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think that's so important because truth is being suppressed at an astronomical level. And it's not even being done anymore by human hands. The algorithms are taking over. Yeah, that's crazy. It, it's and it's not even a. Sometimes it's not a, a an idea of a truth being suppressed. It's the truth being rewritten or twisted and manipulated to say something that it didn't. Would you consider like, that a suppression, though? If if you change truth think, and it's no I longer def- true, I would define suppression as you can't access it. You don't know what it is. It's almost like wiping it from the record. I would say that what we're seeing is a rewriting of history and a manipulation of the facts. The facts are on January 6th, um, a group of right-wing Americans, they walked through the Capitol. Those hey, are the facts. Hey, hey Drew. Manipulation of that are, Drew. it is the worst time in American history, right? Drew, this is yeah. a new show. We, we, we've we got, you know, we, we, we want to stay on the air for a while. So there are hot button issues we can't talk about. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the calendar went January 5th to 7th. Yeah, sorry, guys. There's, there's no day. This. There's no day, so there's nothing for me to contentiously talk about here. That's funny. But no, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, they they did walk through, but we even not only did they walk through, there's reports and even evidence that they were welcomed in. Doors were open. Jeez. I wouldn't at all be surprised if there were snack stands and gift bags on the way in at this point because they were just ushering them in from what I've seen. Right, right. And then charging them with conspiracy, but conspiracy doesn't exist. You, you know. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. And nobody, again, nobody's questioning it. Nobody's saying, hey, wait a minute. I think one of the, one of the strongest tools to suppress truth is the elimination of curiosity, the elimination of the skill of asking a question. And unfortunately, the church has been horrible at that because a a ton of people that I've talked to that have bad experiences with, you know, the church, the organization, is because you're not allowed to ask questions. I, I think you're right, but I think the church has been influenced. It's the same in education, Chris. In our own curriculum... In our, in our own curriculum here in Victoria and Australia broadly, we have a curriculum area which is um, social skills and critical and capable thinking, like being able to break things down and think about it critically. 
fantastic. But when you look at the curriculum, you can't actively question or ask certain questions about certain areas. So it's not really critical thinking skills if you can't question certain narratives or want to dive down certain rabbit holes or go into different means of thinking or take on other people's views and aspects. When you're not allowed to do that, it's not critical thinking, but it's being portrayed as being that. Right. Interesting. And, and when you relabel when you relabel state thinking as critical thinking and you teach that as a skill set, you really build androids. You you build automatons. You build people that will accept and embrace what the expert says as opposed to question. Now, we have this big thing here in the States of question everything, and I think it's a bit of a misnomer. I think you should question everything in order to find the truth. And when you find the truth, believe the truth and act on the truth. We don't teach that. So at, at best, we end up breeding a bunch of skeptics, skeptics that borderline on a-holes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm just questioning everything. OK, well, at some point you have to accept something is true. You, you can't have some kind of skin in the game. Don't you? Right. You can't Otherwise, just stay in a perpetual questionary mode. It's a very, very sad existence being blackpilled forever. Right. Um, but it's very safe. You know, I'm just questioning yeah. everything. Yeah. You never get in trouble. You never get things wrong if you're constantly questioning and pointing the finger at everyone. Exactly. But like you said, like you said, how the, the state thinking, the state thinking happens that critical thinking I was talking about in our curriculum at a high school level, one of the descriptive standards for that level in, I think it's year 10, is for research purposes. And it says you have to have verified sources when you're searching on the internet. Well, that's just state thinking because the verified sources only have one spin on things. So it's not critical thinking. It's an oxymoron. Interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. They kind of used to do that to us when we had to write stuff in, in college. You know, you'd have to go cite your work. But yeah, Citation can- is fine. But well, who can I pick can only, to cite? Yeah. Like, can I cite exactly. me? Somebody had to have an original <laughs> idea at some point, right? That's right. When you have to have a verified source that is only one thing, like an NBC or an ABC or a BBC, they're all pumping out the same message. So how are you going to find a, a, an idea or thought process that differs in any kind of way? You won't. Right. And well, if you use scripture at all as a verified source. Oh, you're in trouble. Quickly. <laughs> <laughs> There, there has been this thing going on uh, in, in our education system I wanted to talk to you about, Drew. So you've been one to talk about the Prussian education system, which is great because you're one of the, the few voices for that. And I, I think it's essential in understanding why it doesn't work the way that we think it should because it was not designed to. But one of the things that we saw during COVID is because our children weren't in the classrooms and they were at home. So they were doing you know, what we're doing now. They were zooming into classes the parents got to see a lot of the nonsense that was happening in school. And now there's this, this outrage, you know, how dare you teach our children this, you know, it's, there's really a a growing number of voices speaking out against this, uh, this curriculum and, and, and what's happening in school. So being someone that, that watches that, it almost seems like they're shooting themselves in the foot, right? Like they've orchestrated this and they've picked all this and they have this education system but now they're in trouble because they're getting found out. Have, has that kind of happened in Australia or? To a small degree, but not. it doesn't have the, the level that it has in the States. Like in America at the moment, the, the last numbers I saw, there were 17 million kids in the homeschool system. That's nearly the entire population of, a tra- of Australia. We're at 26 million and you've got nearly more kids in homeschool than what we do. Our homeschool system's quite small in comparison. Okay. And I think what 
a lot of parents, like you said, a lot of parents saw, they got a glimpse into what the classroom's like and the agendas that's in the government curriculum. Parents, the average person on the street, has no idea what kids are being taught in school. They fall back on, I was taught um, the three R's, I was taught maths, I was taught um, literacy, I was taught reading, all those things, the basic stuff. It's not that anymore. There's government-mandated curriculum that's not even tied into what you consider academia. So our kids are literally getting pumped with government agendas each day and the average person wouldn't have no idea. And the worst part is parents don't get a say. And I say this time and time again, even as a government school teacher, if you want to raise your child a certain way, uh, have a certain set of morals, a certain set of values, you have to be really, really sharp and really on point with what those schools are teaching because you have no say in it. Yeah. Essentially, you, you leave your kid with a stranger for five hours a day and they are teaching your kid things that you may not approve of, may disagree with, what have you, but that it is happening. And that can't be stopped unless you take your kid out of the system. Right. right. And I think that was the point of a compulsory education system. The fact that we mandate that they have to go to a, a state-run system. And for the people in the United States, I know it's going to be hard to come to terms with the fact that the United States educational system is, by many rights, state-run. State-run through corporations that own tax-free foundations that in turn influence the political or the, yeah, the political agendas that become educational standards. And yep. our children are stuck within it. Mm-hmm. You know, this is how you get wonderful things like new math. I don't know right. what your guys' math is like over there in Australia, but this new math, yo, this is crazy. I don't know how drug dealers yeah. are making it on the street with this new math. <laughs> like, this is affecting Common everybody. Core. Common core is nuts. Yeah, We haven't really picked that up. Some more advanced maths classes may use it. The basis of Common Core is that it uses elements of what you would teach to a high-functioning autistic child. Because their brain is operating a different way and really analyzing everything, Common Core makes sense to those people because they can really break down maths into like 50 different steps. Okay. Whereas the average person would just memorize their times tables or memorize doubles and thirds and patterns and all these types of things and just get it. Now kids have to go through multiple steps to prove they got the answer. Getting the answer isn't enough anymore. They have to prove it. Like, okay, working it out, that's fine, but you shouldn't have to show 50 steps and a box grid to figure out 12. I'm sorry. It's right. just 12. Math is math. <laughs> right. So, Drew, right. let me ask you, if you are a, a, if you're a non-autistic person going through a system that was designed based off of teaching methods that were directed at autistic people and you're in an impressionable stage of your development, what is the end result for that, that mind that goes through that process? Do they become more autistically inclined? Does it impede their development process? Or is there a a null impact on them? Well, the thing, I don't think we've really come out of that that bracket yet where we haven't got those kids that have come out of high school just yet. Like we won't know until these people are in the workforce, right? But what I'm seeing is deeply confused kids. Okay. Kids who, some kids will get it. Like I said, some of them are that way inclined. There's different types of intelligence, and some kids may get it. Others, they'll rack their brain. They'll get upset. And it'll get to the point where they can actually develop anxiety around maths because mm-hmm. they just don't get it. And they don't want to be like the, their peers who, who don't get it. They see like the, the special table, the kids that are lower IQ levels. They don't want to be like that. And they think they're dumb and stupid by not understanding these 50 steps. And it compounds by 
those kids going home and asking parents for help. And it ends up the parents screaming at their kids, why don't you get this math? It's so easy. And <laughs> right. the kids feel even more anxious, right? So yeah. we're seeing this complete eruption of social anxiety and kids that are developing depression that's never been seen at levels like they are today. Now, it seems to me like that would have the commensurate effect of separating parent and child. It seems mm-hmm. like it would destroy the family unit in a, in a very unique way. You know, if I can't depend on my parent to help me through what they supposedly went through, then I'm on my own. And if if this is the case for elementary education, why am I listening to you about things regard you know, about life? You can't relate. And so where am I going to go to get my answers? The same people that taught me this new math that you can't relate to. They seem to be yeah. on the ball. Suddenly there's a shift between the parent, the parent as the authoritarian in the child's life and the state now moving in. Yeah, well, that's the whole point of the Prussian model, right? Like for those people that don't know, the idea of the Prussian model, model was to separate families from children. Right. End of the day, that is it. It was wrapped up in a nice little package with a bow on it that it was to get kids out of um, – work and making children work at a young age and, and it was uplifting people so that they had more money. It's always presented in a positive and that sounds fantastic. But at the end of the day, it was designed to take kids away from families, create little factory workers for the industrial revolution so that the state could produce and keep growing. That's all it was for. And we're seeing a big clash of culture at the moment because we still use the Prussian, Prussian model but we've got this woke ideology, this leftist agenda, communism, Satanism, whatever you want to read into it. That's coming to heads with that now because the Prussian model is built on capitalism, expansion and growth, expansion and growth, making money. When these kids go through primary school and high school, that's what they're fed until they get into, or say, later high school and then university. They become little leftists. They become socialists. Socialists don't want to grow the economy. Socialists generally don't want to work. They want the state to feed them. So you've got these two ideological warheads hitting each other and the kids are the the explosion in the middle. Like that's the next generation. I don't know how the world's going to operate with two completely different ideas of how the world should should look. I tell you what was alarming to me is that I forget who, who said this, Christopher, you may remember, but it was a dude who was actually going through some of the Illuminati influences on our, our society. And he actually pointed out that when it comes to communism, that it was actually funded and created by capitalists, that the people who actually funded um, uh, Karl Marx and funded Lenin were actually the same capitalists, the same Rothschilds uh, that were funding what was happening over here in the United States, and that it was done in a manner in which to control. It was supposed to be the next phase of development and control of not just Eastern European or Asian markets, it was supposed to control globally, like the push was to go communism and socialism. In the early 1850s, the Illuminati held a secret meeting in New York to unite the nihilist and atheist groups with all other subversive groups into an international to be known as communists. That was when the word communist first came into being, and it was intended to be the supreme weapon and scare word to terrify the whole world and drive the terrorized peoples into the Illuminati One World Scheme. Of course, most of the funds were provided by the Rothschilds. And this fund was used to finance Karl Marx and Engels when they wrote Das Kapital, 
and the Communist Manifesto in Soho, England. And this clearly reveals that communism is not a so-called ideology, but a secret weapon, a bogeyman word to serve the purpose of the Illuminati. While Karl Marx was writing the Communist Manifesto under the direction of one group of Illuminists, Professor Karl Ritter of Frankfurt University was writing the antithesis under direction of another group. The idea was that those who direct the overall conspiracy could use the differences in those two so-called ideologies to enable them to divide larger and larger members of the human race into opposing camps so that they could be armed and then brainwashed into fighting and destroying each other, and particularly to destroy all political and religious institutions. The work Ritter started was continued after his death and completed by the German so-called philosopher Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche, who founded Nietzscheism. This Nietzscheism was later developed into fascism and then into Nazism and was used to foment World Wars I and II. Again, I remind that these conspirators were never concerned with immediate success. They always operated on a long-range view. Yeah, and I've got a little theory behind that as to why it actually started in Russia. So, as you know, the Khazarians are from that part of the world, right? right. And we had the Rus Sword Empire, which quickly put these people down and said, you need to convert to a religion. And they chose Judaism in the long run. Anyway, you go forward in time, the people that were funding communism, like you said, they were these big wealthy billionaires who most likely are Kazarian in ancestry. Their idea was to absolutely decimate Russia over an old blood feud. They hated the Russians. Russia is also the source of the Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Church, the biggest Eastern Orthodox Church in reality at the time. So if you're wiping out God from people at the same time as crushing an old enemy, that's perfect for them. And like you said, if they could apply that globally, they've got the best of both worlds. And you're kind of seeing that now evolve into like the China model. China makes big money from capitalism, but at the same right. time, it's a socialist country. Which I haven't been able to figure out. They're 14, what do they call that? <laughs> Capitalistic zones or whatever it is. They're special. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How do you have that? The population of China is huge. 1.4 billion people. More than North America, South America, Australia, New Zealand, Scandinavia, and all of Western Europe combined. According to the Chinese government, nearly 16% of the population lives in China's 15 megacities, each with a population of over 10 million. There are only 47 such cities in the world. As of 2018, China is responsible for 18.6% of global gross domestic product. It exports 41% of the world's computers, 34% of all air conditioners, and a whopping 70% of the world's cell phones. In 1960, China's economy is worth $59 billion, a figure dwarfed by the United States' economy, worth $543 billion. But in the early 1970s, America decides it's time to win over Mao, 
taking advantage of a rift between him and his communist counterparts in the Soviet Union. Richard Nixon becomes the first American president ever to visit China. After 25 years of isolation, Mao seems prepared to reestablish ties with America. And Nixon hopes to encourage an American-style democracy in China. But when Supreme Leader Mao dies in 1976, his autocratic system doesn't die with him. It just takes a whole new direction. Enter Deng Xiaoping. When Deng takes China's reins at the end of 1978, he makes it clear that, while his party is not going to relinquish any power, China will consider opening up to the West if they can make a little money out of it. This is the reason for Deng's cheerful visit to America. He's sending a signal to the world. Communist China is open for business. And they start by embarking on a program of economic reform, creating four special economic zones, or SEZs. The zones will be allowed to play by different rules than the rest of communist China. Here, factories will be able to export goods to the West, and importers will be able to trade with capitalist countries. The idea is that these zones will draw foreign investment and serve as mini economic engines for the rest of the country. And it works. Spectacularly. Just three years ago, this area housed a few villages and paddy fields. Today, it is a bustling commercial site, an industrial city being built from scratch. China's leaders insist that these SEZs are just experiments in global trade. They remain dedicated to the ideals of communism and Mao. One of the first special economic zones is the fishing village of Shenzhen, population 59,000. By 2016, its population swells to 12 million. Its GDP per capita increases an astounding 24,569%. Which explains why, over the next 30 years, China will begin designating more and more of these development zones. By 2005, China is constructing neighborhoods the size of Rome every two weeks. Between 2011 and 2013, China uses more cement than the U.S. did in the entire 20th century. Between 1980 and 1990, China's economy almost doubles. But so does America's, keeping it far ahead. By 1998, China's economy hits the $1 trillion mark. But America is still way ahead, hitting $9 trillion. Supporters of China's international investments say that these infrastructure projects will lift millions of people out of poverty and create jobs in poorer countries. 
Critics say it's a land grab, using checkbooks instead of swords. Either way, it's increasing China's overall wealth at an astronomical rate. By 2018, China's economy is closing in on America's. It's not a matter of if, but when China overtakes the U.S. The best guess is by 2025, making China the world's number one economic superpower. If capitalism is what's driving the Chinese economy, then you really can't claim to be a communist economy. No, it's a bastard child of the two I think they want to replicate worldwide. They probably realized capitalism was a dead end. It wasn't going to, like exponential growth has to stop somewhere. Mm-hmm. Either you don't have the workers or you don't have the resources. You can't continually grow all the time. Communism was also a dead end because you can't possibly keep that system going either because it collapses in on itself. We've seen that time and time again. So they're trying to merge the two together and they're trying to really do that through like a techno-fascism and we're going to be like the serfs of the past but in a highly technologically advanced world. See, now I've been um, I'm sorry, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say the World Economic Forum is doing that. They call it stakeholder capitalism (laughs) because instead of holding shares, you have a stake in what's happening in the, the environment, in the world community. So things like uh, you know, greenhouse gases and your carbon footprint and all of that matters. And it, it is just like you said, Drew, it's that combination of communism and capitalism under this new name, stakeholder capitalism. Well, now that you're talking about that, something like that has happened in Australia recently. We have a cha- we had a big change in government. We've got our left-wing government in control now nationally, which is our Labor Party. They've got a brand new approach to solve the Australian economy. They're calling it a uniquely Australian economy. And their major spin on it is they're going to promote investment and infrastructure and building by giving the trade unions a stake at the table of where your superannuation or your 401k is invested. So essentially it's a means for the government to take your savings that you've been working for for your retirement and they're going to use that to pay for new buildings and new things for the state. So it's stakeholder capitalism in effect here in Australia. That's crazy. That's not problematic. <laughs> not at all. No. I want to go retire. Sorry, the this building looks very nice, though, but I can't afford to eat as an 80-year-old. Cool. Awesome. I'll just go live in that building. Well, at least That's you guys terrible. get a building. Like, we we just get an IOU. Like, what do, you, what do you mean you put in for Social Security? You're not even supposed to be alive. You know, you, you try to cash a check that we didn't intend for you to be here for. Like, you're a little early to the party. It's, uh, you're, you're a little bit too alive at the moment. Can you come back when you're dead? It's really going to help the state out. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's why we set the retirement age as high as we did. We had oh, already funny. looked at the tables and we know when you should be dying. What a scam that is, right? Like you you work your whole life to have maybe two or three years of retirement when your body's pretty much well and truly and you can't do anything with it. Exactly. Like you're, so, you're so old and you can't do anything. That's not enjoying life. Really, we should be retiring at like 30 and maybe working part-time or or sustaining ourselves in some means, but you're not supposed to work your entire life to have a few years. It's like the working week. You got you work five days to get two off. Those are pretty shitty odds. If those were the odds in Vegas, no one would be betting, right? Right. 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 You sound like me on Monday. Thank you sound like me like on Tuesday through Friday too. That's funny. But if, if we could circle back to, to the education system real quick, uh, there's something. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Last year, now Ohio wasn't able to do this, but last year they tried to push uh, 
SB 178. And, and for, for those that don't know, it was where they took this, this issue that arose through COVID. So, you know, all of the parents are seeing what's going on in the schools and they blame the school board, right? Everyone blames the school board for this issue. So then Ohio comes in and they go, oh, well, we can, we can fix this because the school board is so corrupt. Let's do away with the school board on a state level and we'll replace it with a single person appointed by the governor. Oh, that's that's going to work really well. I was like, that's terrible. Like, yeah, the school board might have some issues, but you're taking away any uh, uh, democratically elected people to to represent you in this spot. And it's it's just a person selected by the governor. And that's that's scary that they're even trying to do that. But if if this is a if they're showing their hand and, and this is really the um, the the tactic, right, to to um, to villainize all of the, the school boards and go, oh, well, because all of the parents don't like what all the school boards are doing, well, let's just get rid of them and we'll have these selected people by, you know, state officials. That's just wrought with danger. So many red flags here. I don't know if your system's quite like ours. Um, instead of school boards, we have school councils. Okay. Um, but the pro- problem is in Australia, our curriculum is mandated by the state. It's schools just have to follow it. The school council is like an unofficial little panel where parents come in and fundraise and make sure the school's in a good financial position. They don't actually get a say in any curriculum. Do your school boards actually have a say in what children are learning or are they just dealing what's being handed down from up top? Um, I think it's a, a both and situation. There's definitely things that come down from a, a federal level that you you have to teach these things. But there is a little bit of wiggle room allowed per state. Um, there should be a lot more room per state to decide, you know, how we want to educate our children. But that just that year over year is getting reduced. And, and this step of just having a, you know, a selected person is a, is a huge step in, in shutting out any say that the, the population of the state has. Because it'll just be appointed by someone who has a family member that needs a job, job for the boys, right? Right, right, exactly. Now, uh, for, for those in Ohio, they had to pass SB 178 before the end of last year, and they didn't. So I don't know if they're if it's still SB 178 or if they're trying to call it something else. I, I'm not sure, but it's definitely an alarming uh, move from the government. It's very concerning, especially that it actually got some limelight and people are talking about it. Usually these things are just tacked onto bills and they pass through like a Congress or a parliament like we've got here. And no one finds out a bit about it until it's passed. What well, mm-hmm. was in page 7,622 of a 10,000 page document. Right. You didn't read it. So it's your fault. Yeah. Well, like they say here, you know, we got to pass it in order to find out what's in it. <laughs> right. Cause they, they don't read it. What a wonderful system. Right. I don't <laughs> see where anything could go wrong with this. Who could read it in 24 hours? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But this is the system, you know, we find ourselves every four years allowing to exist. And, you know, we just, if we can vote the right person in, they'll change the whole system. Oh, that's such a horrible, horrible. Hasn't line. worked yet, but it's going to work this time. Cause this guy, this time, <laughs> this gun's my guy. He's my person. And they won't yep. lie to us this time. This man saying no, he promises. Perfect. Right. I was like, let's try a woman. Just, I just want to see if they lie. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just curious, you know, after, after like, I what? think we already have the answer. To Shut that. up. <laughs> they need an opportunity to prove this. We live in a scientific community. I need the facts. I need you to prove to me that you will lie to me. Oh, that's funny. No, I think you got to circumvent a female president. You're going to go straight to a 
disabled, binary, trans person of colour, mixed race, who's also um, a furry. That'll be your next president. I can see it. Can't be worse than what we got now. You'd be surprised. No, probably, probably a lot better. That <laughs> <laughs> might be. You'd be surprised. We might Could just bypass all that and just get an AI president. Oh. Probably already got one. Right. Yeah. Right. He looks, a lot, he looks very different all the time the same. Yeah. I've been doubt. noticing that. And the yeah. ear, the earlobe thing. Have you heard the earlobe thing? Yeah. Yeah. And either he got a whole lot of Botox at one point or they had pegs at the back of his head stripping back his skin because he looked very tight in the face all of a sudden. Yeah. That was that upgrade we were talking about. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you maybe you've seen this before, Drew. But uh, going into mind control and entertainment, have you seen the show The Flight of the Concords? I have, yeah. The Kiwi show. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's been big here for years now, like over ten years. Okay, I, yeah. I thought it was so funny, like because they they it's almost represented in like reverse racism, right? Mm-hmm. Like like they don't like Australians because Australians are better than them in every way, and I I just thought that was just a, a hysterical take on it. Well, we do refer to New Zealand as one of our excess states we haven't taken yet. <laughs> okay, okay. So Drew, let me ask you this. Where did the the population of New Zealand originate from? So there's the Maori, which are the native inhabitants. Um, bit of a contentious issue. There's supposedly a, a pre-people before them, um, which the Maori actually arrived in eight because they were cannibalistic, but it's not really spoken about too much. And the original the inhabitants after that, same as us, British. British it's hard to Irish. talk about it if you've gotten eaten. Yeah, yeah right? You right. can't really talk about it. Yeah, that man was, mm, that was delicious. I don't know what y'all He's talking about. He's got a bite missing out of your arm. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the same as us. It's and For a long time, as the colonies of Australia were set up, New Zealand was part of that. And eventually they split because of the distance. But the yeah, same setup as us, Scotch, Irish, British, just the new empire, really. Okay, so where does the where does the contention of the beef come from between Australians and New Zealands? But, well, essentially, we're cousins, right? It's like New Zealand's our version of Canada, okay. where we've we've okay. got a shared ancestry, a shared history. We're both under the crown. Um, in wartime, we're connected. So the Australian and New Zealand Army were combined for World War One um, under the banner of ANZACs, Australian New Zealand Army Corps. Um, so we fought and died alongside each other. We've got actually a really strong bond, but like brothers or cousins, we give each other shit a lot. Like we tease each other, we banter. Okay. It's just what we do. Okay. Speaking of military really quick before, uh, we get back to, to the, the movie mind control segment. Um, is there any resentment within Australia for the amount of military dependence or intervention that the United States has in that market? I think so, but Australia, like the Australian military, we're really proud boys. Like I was in the Australian Air Force, so I know what it's like. We're very we, – we bat above our weight in a global scale. What we do for such a small armed forces, mm-hmm. we're very proficient at. So we're proud in that fact. But we, uh, we know we are reliant on someone else. The size of our military, if there's any kind of in, outside invading force, we wouldn't really stand a chance long term. We had the British for a long time. World War II proved that the British wasn't always going to be there for us, especially if they were fighting a war on their own front. That's mm-hmm. why we became dependent on America. And ever since then, we've been the American vassal state of the South Pacific in a lot of ways. We've got a lot of US bases here. We've got Pine Gap, which is an American military 
intelligence service um, station. You know how many Americans don't know how many U.S. bases there are globally? Glo- yeah, globally. They yeah. are everywhere. It's like the plant's got measles. Uh, dude, <laughs> like, I saw a map of it. I was like, yo! <laughs> if you ask the U.S. military how many bases they have overseas, you won't really get an answer. They don't make it all too hard to find out about the larger ones, Ramstein Air Base in Germany, Thule Air Base in Greenland, Camp Hansen in Japan. These all show up on the closest thing to an official catalog of the U.S. military's real estate there is, the annual Department of Defense Base Structure Report. According to this document, the American military has some 514 sites outside of its borders, but there are some noticeable omissions to this list. For example, the U.S. has a rather secretive drone base in central Niger, however, according to this list, it doesn't exist. The U.S. has more than 10 sites in Syria, however, according to this list, they don't exist. The U.S. has a satellite surveillance facility in Australia's Northern Territory so well known, in fact, that it has a whole fictional TV show based on it, but according to this list, it doesn't exist. In fact, according to this list, there are just four Defense Department installations in Africa a base in Djibouti, a joint British-American base on Ascension Island, an NSA site in Kenya, and a naval medical research facility in Egypt. Of course, if you dig a little deeper into the vast archive of unclassified military documents, you find this. A slide from a presentation clearly showing 34 U.S. military sites in Africa. With omissions such as these, one can assume that the total 514 number is far from the real count of how many facilities the U.S. military maintains abroad. You see, the U.S. military splits the world into six regions, each with their own infrastructure of bases. Each has a hierarchy of sites. The highest, in the case of Africa Command, are those permanent full-blown bases, the one in Djibouti and the one on Ascension Island. One step below that are what are called cooperative security locations. These are, according to the U.S. military's definition, host nation facilities with little or no permanent U.S. personnel presence which may contain pre-positioned equipment and or logistical arrangements and serve both for security cooperation activities and contingency access. CSLs are useful to the U.S. military because they are much less flashy and less permanent. They don't require the same kind of political capital as to set up a full-size base like the one in Djibouti. Bases are often unpopular and receive press scrutiny, both in the U.S. and the host country, so small, few-hundred-person CSLs have the advantage of being able to be set up with, essentially, no publicity. You can think of them as smaller versions of the kind of bases you find in Djibouti or Ascension Island, which can, rather quickly, become bigger bases should the need arise. The remaining 20 known sites on the continent are what are called contingency locations. Now, this terminology can be used for a lot of different types of facilities, but in essence, what it means is that these are temporary sites established as part of ongoing missions. In the era of nuclear weapons that can obliterate any city on Earth in an hour, aircraft carriers sailing worldwide with more aircraft than some countries' air forces, and airplanes that could land troops in any country on Earth in a day, why does the U.S. bother spending so much money maintaining bases in allied countries during peacetime? The primary reason has to do with a military concept known as the loss of strength gradient. This concept essentially theorizes that the further a conflict is away from a military's home country, the less military power that nation is able to bring to the fight. This is largely because it is, of course, complicated and expensive to bring troops and equipment over long distances. Beyond convenience and capability, another major reason for America's heavy overseas military presence is power projection. 
This is a term used by militaries that refers to, according to the US Department of Defense's definition, the ability of a nation to apply all or some of its elements of national power. In this context, it's essentially how fast a country can get to the fight if a fight should arise. Power projection is as much an offensive power as a defensive one. It's about making sure that every other country in the world knows that America can and potentially will respond to whatever they decide is a threat in a timely manner. According to the US Department of Defense, the four countries that currently present the greatest potential national threat to the US are Iran, Russia, China, and North Korea. Looking at the global map of bases, it's no coincidence that the greatest concentrations of overseas bases are near Russia's population center in the East, in the Middle East, and in East Asia. Meanwhile, there's relatively little US military presence in South America, Africa, South and Southeastern Asia, and Australia since there are fewer threats to the US in these areas. Still though, the US military has a nearly permanent presence on every continent. Even on Antarctica, where by international treaty militarization is banned, the US military skirts this regulation by dealing with the logistics of supplying American research bases, which is allowed by the treaty. Some might characterize this experience with Antarctic operations as convenient in the event of any future conflict in this region. While the US's network of overseas bases is only a part of its overall power projection mission, which also includes its nuclear weapons, aircraft carriers, submarines, and more, the main messaging they convey is that the US can get to anywhere fast. We are everywhere. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I see why people be pissed off if, boop, yeah, we're here. I'm like, man, on this corner? This is not where I want my, my base set up. Yeah, I, I would be heated. I was starting to get a, a better understanding of some of the the unreported things that America does globally that would be infuriating if it happened to us. And that's where that Americanization term came in in the early thousands that you know, America was everywhere. It was just a matter of a time until everyone was American because American culture, American music, American sports, food. For the longest time, everyone thought that's the way we'd be. And now it's pivoted to that globalization topic. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> you Yanks are everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Except where we want to be. Right. It reminds yeah, exactly. me. Exactly. There was an old computer game me and my brothers used to play called Galactic Battlegrounds. And it was like a Star Wars, like, civilization type game. And my little brother was notorious. He'd be like, oh, we should be allies. Like, okay, cool. So then he'd start, like, building up uh, defenses and stuff in your base. And then he'd start building fortresses in your base. <laughs> and then as soon as war broke out, he'd switch sides. And there was nothing you could do about it because he was already in your in your base. Sounds, I mean, the tactic worked for him. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the real idea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. That, that's kind of the whole idea of NATO, right? It's not really the, the European Union coming together under one banner. It's just an American military complex ready at the Russian border. That's all that is. I don't right. see why Putin has a problem. I mean, we just, we're <laughs> friendly neighbors, you know? We... We, we deliver a lot of goods. We might have differing views on a few things, but hey, what's one global conflict between friends? Like, we'll work it out Putin, in the aftermath. I thought Putin was just knocking on the door to Ukraine to borrow some brown sugar. That's what I thought. <laughs> Apparently, he wanted Crimea instead. Crimea, brown sugar sounds the same. Right, just about. <laughs> Here, we can borrow some Crimea, please. We were wondering if we can borrow some brown sugar. There's, a, there's this uh, video on the internet that shows... Uh, Putin, he's going by like a, a young child's like martial art um, competition and he pulls one of the kids aside that was in and he like 
explains to him how to how to do the move in a, in a more proficient fashion. I was like, man, so they're getting martial art advice from their leader and ours can't make it upstairs. We are in trouble. <laughs> Secret Service team, the Eagle has landed and is making his way down the helicopter stairs. We know his history with stairs and this could be a disaster. Stand by. Eagle has made it down the stairs. He was a little wobbly at the end, but he made it. Eagle appears to be very disoriented today. We're going to need to do like last time and point out exactly where we need him to go. Secret Service team, prepare a point. Hold that point. Perfect. No way he could miss that. Eagle will be turning in five, four, three, two. He missed his mark. He missed his mark. Eagle is wandering. All units be advised. We are going to need a pretty lady or small child of some sort with nice smelling hair to get the eagle back on track. And we've lost visual. <laughs> no, our, our dude can't say America correctly. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was gonna put him. Uh, put, put, excuse me. Exactly. I was like, "What is he three? What? Whoa, whoa! Somebody got hit the reboot button, right? Shimmer, is not who you're the president of. He doesn't even remember what he says. The last one I saw was, "If we start sending tanks into Europe, that's it. That's World War Three. It's all over, folks." Fast forward three months later, we're sending tanks into Europe, and it's okay, folks. <laughs> You know, as long as he's not shaking hands with Ghost, I'm fine. That but, was probably a, like a lizard person cloaked his real controller telling him what to do. <laughs> right. Because, I mean, he like went to the right to go shake hands. And I was like, uh, nobody's there. Not that we could see. Right. I'm like, yo, I don't know what's in that COVID vaccine he got on air, but I think my man is starting <laughs> to hallucinate. This is problematic. Somebody's got to change the launch codes. <laughs> right until, until we can get this man back under control i'm like at first my first test is you have to be able to say america <laughs> second test is you need to tell me who's next to you <laughs> or not well in, in a world of um cancer being people being canceled for things they've said in the past like biden should have been tarred and feathered in the streets for his comments about african-americans like he's the biggest racist i've ever seen yeah, yeah. when he said i we if we didn't vote for him we couldn't be black i was like mm. yeah. Even back in the day when he was young, air quotes, because he's been there in his whole damn life, he was talking about he never wanted his kids to go to school with African-Americans because he didn't want a racial jungle in the education system. Like, what a piece of shit. Yeah, that seems to be problematic. I figured he just traditional didn't want Democrats, our style. Right, right. Yeah, he just didn't want his, his kids getting our style. You know, you, you no. can't have the young Bidens with swag. Right? They can't be Biden and cool, right? No, 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 because, I mean... We didn't have a lot of our folk having laptops, nor laptop issues. <laughs> right? That's not that's not something that happens in our community. Like, what, what's your download history? You whoa, that's what you downloading? <laughs> I thought we was just dealing with three three-legged midget porn, but you are on something else, my friend. <laughs> All right, God, that's the this is the hunter special. That's what we got going on over here. No, that's funny. So, Chris, you had a couple other things you wanted to say about satanic mind control, was it? Uh, no, I mean, I just, I was going to crack jokes from the TV show, but if he already, if you already know it, Drew, then it's, it's kind of beating a dead horse. I, I thought it was funny right, though. Well, why don't we talk about what, at what shows do you see at the moment that are just blatantly satanic, satanic mind control? Like, is there anything that's new or popular that you see is just being completely out there that people aren't seeing? You know what? Marvel is a huge one. 
because Marvel yeah, is, is it's massive. Super you guys popular. do a good job on that. Yeah, thank Marvel you. is thank you. Marvel is so huge and so pervasive. But honestly, you could step back from Marvel and say Disney. Yeah. There's not too many things that I see Disney having their paw prints on that is not occultic in nature. And it's just flying under the radar because we've been preconditioned to accept the idea that Disney is innocent. And so it doesn't matter if it's in cartoon form, it's definitely innocent. And if it comes from Disney, it's daggone near pure. Wrong. Oh, so wrong. Like there's so many things that I've noticed in just Disney films alone. Or I'm like, even if I didn't start from a, an idea of Satanism being what's behind it, it's just problematic by nature. Like there's so many broken family iterations that come from Disney films where either there's a one parent situation or there's the parents die. I'm like, why is that a common issue? Why can't we have a healthy functioning family unit? Cause it builds a strong society. Yeah. And if there is, a, if there is a, a father in the scene, he's always depicted as a bumbling idiot, right? Like modern family or the Simpsons family guy. The dad's always a complete idiot and has no idea what's going on. And there's always the strong female figure. Like we see that as like a satanic mind control, that matrix like we talk about. But the average person looking in, you can definitely tell that like the wheels have fallen off Marvel at the moment. The phase three initiative they've got going on, it's so woke, so leftist, people just aren't tuning in. Disney's the same way. You're seeing that in Star Wars. They absolutely butchered the last three Star Wars movies all because of a political agenda, but we know there's something deeper to it. Netflix is exactly the same. They had cooties for God's sakes. Yes. Why hasn't there been arrests over that? Right, right. That was a huge issue in, in certain communities, but it, it amazed me that it just skated under the radar on the mainstream level. Like, how'd you put it out there? And everybody was like, oh, I mean, sure, I'll watch this while I eat my spaghetti. I'm like, this is not a show that should be on at all on any platform whatsoever. Who pitched right. this to Netflix and was like, give us a few million to produce this? Give me a few million. I'll produce better content. It's, a, it's like to be, to be a good producer, you had to take an existing story, an existing movie franchise, and yeah, replace the main characters with a gay couple and you get big payment. Like, you do. You're going to make bank, right? Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so aggravated. I don't know, man. There's so many different shows that are popular that I'm beginning to look at differently. Uh, with a totally different lens. Um, and then there are the shows that are just flat out in your face. Like I was watching a, a cartoon the other day. I think it was called um, Dragon. Chris, what did I tell you it was called? Uh, it was a game you played. Um, oh, uh, Dragon Age. Abomin Abomination, I think. I don't know the game. There was... Absolution. Something yes, like it was that. Absolution. That's what you said. Dragon Age Absolution. And I, I'm watching this because I just got done watching uh, – <laughs> some of the Witcher series and there was a Witcher prequel. And I was like, okay, I wasn't really, I didn't really like the Witcher series. The prequel I actually found very interesting as a story. Obviously it's very easy to point out the, the things in that. Uh, and there were agendas that, that were sprinkled through, through all of that, but I got done watching that and then wanted to watch this dragon age thing. And within the first episode, the main characters were gay. And I'm like, why this, this has no advancement of the actual story. And it's, you can see the effects in society too. Like 
if you ever talk about the slippery slope analogy, you're always touted as a bigot or a homophobe, but mm. you're seeing it happening now. Like for a, a, a part of the population, which supposedly only makes up maybe 1% or less than 1% of the population, we're seeing that overly represented. Exactly. Yes. And justified. Like the last, yeah. It's like not- The Last of Us was just had third episode, right? And it was all around uh, a same-sex couple. It's the end of the world. It's an apocalypse. Most of the world's died out. What are the chances that two gay men are going to find each other in that situation? Not to mention, it's probably not your target audience. Of course, right. people aren't going to like it. Right. And so you, you see that reflected in kids now. Like it used to be less than 1% or 1% of the population identified as gay. And now people think it's anywhere from like 10 to 15% of the population are gay. Well, because they're being pushed into it. Like Because my, yeah. mom, my mom works for the school system and she hears conversations like, um, like oh I, I my boobs are uncomfortable or whatever because they're because they're going through changes and some of these physiological mm-hmm. changes aren't always comfortable, and they're like, well well maybe maybe you're trans then. No, you're just this is an uncomfortable stage of life. That's all it is. It doesn't mean some greater identity crisis. Yeah, every, everyone has an awkward stage, right? I reiterate the need for OEM parts. So so I'm saying. If I ever run for public office, that's going to be my platform. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned, Drew, that all of these 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 companies and these agendas are tanking. Do we see anywhere that they that that anyone is coming back to to write or, or backing off of the agenda or anything? Or are they just going? Are they doubling down on on this ridiculous narrative? I tend to think they're doubling down, and if anyone's coming back to write, like. They're co-opted in some other way. I don't think you can see any kind of film and not see some kind of symbolism. Mm-hmm. Um, my my wife and I, my wife loves Netflix, of course, and she sat down and she said, oh, let's watch the, um, the new romantic comedy, You People. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll give it a go. And I sat there and I paused it like three times pointing stuff out to her. There's a scene <laughs> where it's a, a sky view of the guy's workplace. He's in a financial firm and it zooms out and you see the Mason Square with a cut-out piece of grass that looks like the all-seeing eye, and it's encased in a triangle in between the two buildings. Really? Wow. See, I, I haven't <laughs> watched it. The first shot inside the building as he's walking through his workplace, the company logo is like three sixes intertwined. Jeez. Yeah, this level of occultism is becoming more and more apparent in, in the most, so, in, in the strangest oh. places. So, like, to answer your question, I think they're really pumping it up in some things. Like, you got your cuties, you got your brand new Star Wars, you got Disney Plus shows, where it's very blatant. Then there's the stuff that they produce, which, like, the average person can watch, and it's fine, but it's still hidden away. It's like the movies we watch from when we were kids. We go back now and we see it. We didn't see it back then. It's going to be the same case for a lot of films today. Unless you're actively looking and know what to look for, you can't see. Okay, that makes sense. I know it's funny. I mentioned my mom just a second ago, but she used to be into a lot of this stuff when I was younger and I thought she was crazy. <laughs> you know, everyone else <laughs> thought she was crazy. Wait, she was into like occultism or? We're not into occultism, but into seeing these things. Okay. You know, like, you know, you probably shouldn't watch that. That's not good for you. Why? You're, you're making too big of a deal out of it or, or, or whatever. So then to come back around and I'm like, mom, did you know this and this and this? And she's like, Christopher? I was saying all this stuff when you were nine years old. <laughs> so it's 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 interesting. Well, look, dude, you were telling me the other day about just Netflix. It, it's one thing to see the stuff 
on in these these programs, right? To see the stuff in the content itself. But it's even more alarming to find out the the goals and aspirations of the company itself. Mm-hmm. Like Netflix stated that we want to create content that you binge off of, right? Like we're our competition is not Apple, it's not Amazon. It's it's not these other streaming services. Our competition competition is your own physiology. We're competing against your need to go to sleep. And we're trying to make content that makes you psychologically hooked on going to see the next episode, even if it costs you your sleep. And that's sinister. Like if you think about like robbing people of their sleep, it it increases anxiety. You know, you can fall asleep at the wheel. Like there's so much evil wrapped into desiring to steal sleep from people. You can't enjoy cuties. You know, (laughs) there's a lot of problems that are wrapped up in this. And we know that through the brainwashing techniques of MKUltra and all other kinds of mechanisms, if you're sleep deprived and you are really run down, you're more susceptible. Mm-hmm. So if you're just binge watching an average show, right, and you're up till three o'clock in the morning, you're watching an episode, you don't really know what you're taking in or what it's imprinting on your mind exactly. at that time. Exactly. And then you add to it the fact that uh, Christopher pointed this out uh, a few weeks ago that one of the co-founders of Netflix is, I can't remember his name, Christopher. Mark Bernays Randolph. No. Yes. He is, he is, he is the, the great nephew of Edward Bernays. He's got the same relationship to Edward Bernays that Edward Bernays had to Sigmund Freud. Yep. It'd be interesting to know if there's actually a single actor who was just a nobody, has no kind of connections to like elites, to military industrial complex, to government organizations or to royalty. Cause they've all got some kind of connection. I haven't seen a single down and out person lifting themselves up by the bootstraps and becoming a star. Right. You don't get these right. outliers. Uh-uh. No. Like you, you hear of outliers in the music industry. Someone's found air quotes, but you don't see it in acting ever. Mm. Uh-uh. Which makes me wonder, not just are, are they related. It also makes me wonder, are they not specifically chosen and walking, walked through specific uh, rituals in order to progress through the system? Oh, they probably sit down on councils together, like when they're deciding they're going to have their kids are going to be married one day, and this one's going to be a performer at Juilliard, and then they're going to go to Harvard, and then they're going to be in six blockbusters, and we've already got them penciled in. And your son's going to be in the CIA, and he's going to do this. They've already got it mapped out. Like it's far beyond what we could ever imagine. I'm sure of it. It's crazy. Would be hilarious that while they're while they're they're supposed to to go that way. The son accidentally runs into Harvey Weinstein and changes his course of action. And the daughter <laughs> accidentally ends up on the Lolita Express. And she's like, this is not what I was supposed to be. I was supposed to be an, an actor. I don't know how I got into politics. Well, Julia from Cosmic Peach, she did a really good job on uh, her Laurel Canyon, Can- Canyon episodes. Yeah. Where she talks about all of the, uh, the music- musicians and stuff actually have military ties. Like, yeah, like... Um, oh. Sorry, you, you go, Chris. I'm just trying to think of the name. Oh, the the first one that I'm thinking of is John Denver. Yeah, that's another one. Uh, Jim Morrison, big one. Yeah, yeah. Massively big. All connected to usually uh, family members or, or parents that were in the military. Interesting. Yeah, and they all end up in these super prominent positions to influence the, the minds of young children. Or adults, young adults, really. Wasn't it Lennon who said, give me a... Give me- 
I don't care who makes the laws. Give me one generation of your youth and I can change a nation. Yep, exactly. And like you were saying, Jason, they have to be prepped from such a young age to be a certain thing because there's an idea that you might have influence to get someone a job or a family member a job or a certain career path. Mm -hmm. That's one small outlier. For it to happen to multiple people and actors and all of them to be fantastic at what they do, that's been done since birth. That's not a I'm 21 or I'm 40 and want to be an actor now. That's been done along along the background. Yeah. And then we'll put those people on a socially influencing show like Ellen and we'll hear about (laughs) their their story and we'll aspire to be that way. But they get to they get to dance, Jason. Don't you just like the dancing? I do. That that's why I go to Ellen. You know, it helps me alleviate myself of the stress that I feel being in this environment. And when I can see these people dance, I'm like, life is gonna be okay. I believe it. I believe I'm gonna be all right. So I, I I'm I'm my favorite show used to be The Office. Oh, I love The Office. Don't ruin it for me. Don't, don't ruin it for me. No, no, no. Me. See, see that that's what concerns me. I don't have any bad information on The Office. And it seems very suspicious. Like we see the corruption everywhere that we go. And The Office has been so popular for so long. And you have The Office Ladies podcast, which is good. And you have the uh, oral history of The Office by uh, Brian uh, Baumgartner. Excellent. Like it still is 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 generating a, a, a crowd and a, and a following. And it still has social impact. So I'm sitting back going, what am I missing? When all of these other areas, all of these other blockbusters, um, all of these things that have immense social impact are directly tied to the military, MK Ultra, uh, particular woke agendas, the office is right up there with all the big dogs, and I don't see anything. It's spotless. The culture of filming and writing, the actors have nothing but good things to say about it, and they were, you know, all the directors and showrunners helped them become better people, and they were like a family. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong. I'm saying it's suspicious that it has no dirt on it whatsoever. I'll tell you what. Give Julia from Cosmic Peach and I four weeks a box of Hot Pockets and unlimited time, we'll find something. It's okay. got to be there. Good. It, y'all it can deal with that. In. Give me your address. The Hot Pockets are on the way. I'm saying y'all can deal <laughs> with that. Just don't touch the West Wing. Oh, I've <laughs> well, already hit one. the West Wing. You shut up. Okay, the West Wing that's, was that's, great. That just seems obvious, though, because it's politically motivated. The Office or something like Community seem like ones that would be harder to get around because it's just a generic comedy show, right? Right. But... There's got to be something there. It's either in the names of the characters, because often the names of the characters dictate a lot that people don't realize. Right. Mm-hmm. Or it's got to be things in the actual set, things in the background that are shown. Those are the things we always overlook. That's true. Like I was looking at uh, my sister, I was telling you about earlier. She, she pointed out, what were we watching? I think we were watching Blackish. And she was like, I can't stand the show. And I said, why? She said, start looking at the background. Look at the floors. You see the checkerboard, checkerboard floors <laughs> and places that, I mean, we don't. We wouldn't normally put floors there like that, you know. Or you see Buddha in the background. You see other statues on the bookshelf. Things that you're just like, hmm. You don't normally question that. You don't normally pay attention, like you said, to to the background. And it's important because that's speaking to the subconscious all along. Yeah, and you see that change in in cinema. That in the past you used to have really long form shots that were purposeful that would pan across. Now, in particularly in, in TV shows like The Office, 
the cuts between shots are so quick and so fast. It's probably designed for us not actually to pick up on the things that are in the backgrounds. Kids TV shows are synonymous for it. Those are like swapping between nanoseconds each right. time. It sets a, a false expectation for the real world and changes your uh, attention span that you only can pay attention to, you know, things for a couple seconds. So it's, it's funny. My, my son has not watched any like TV, like no TV shows, no Paul patrol. He's only two, but now that he's two, we're starting to introduce him to things, but it's just like a, a single shot of a train. Cause he loves trains. Mm-hmm. He, he's got a birthday party coming up and it's a chugga chugga two, two party. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it's, it's interesting because I, I'm trying to be intentional about the, the way that it's shot, you know, so two or three minutes of a still shot, like you're saying, and you're just watching a train pass across the screen. I think is, I mean, it's about as harmless as a TV can get at that point. But once you start, like you're saying, go into those quick cuts and those shifts, it really changes how much you can focus on what you're consciously aware of and your whole interaction with it is different. Yeah. The cognitive impact's quite big when you look at things like that. But then you take it a step further as what's the social impact and a big, really big show that's been in Australia for a while now and it's really starting to gain ground in the States is Bluey, a kid's cartoon about dog, a family of dogs, Blue Healers. And you look at it now, there's episodes where it's really pushing agendas of um, gender confusion, not knowing who you are and who you, and what, who you are in your own skin. If you're giving that to kids at the age of three or four years old, what are those long-term implications? Right. So parents definitely need to be really careful with what type of media they expose their kids to. Right. right. And then I think they also have got to definitely be concerned about the type of technology that they expose their kids to, you know, because that media is going to be communicated on a certain medium. And what we're yeah. finding, you know, for us is that that mind control sector actually utilizes technology in a way that that exploits our physiology. You know, we sit, you sit down in front of an iPad, right? And you, you, most parents, at least here in the States are using iPads to help. I don't want to say most, but a significant portion of parents tend to use iPads as a form of babysitting. Yeah, we say it here. Right. Horrible. And you put that screen in front of a a kid at different times. One, the blue light has got an effect on their pituitary gland. It's got an effect on melatonin production. Um, but it also changes their cognitive state. It changes the brainwave functioning. And that, especially at a, at a impressionable stage, can change their developmental processing. Not only that, yeah. they also don't learn how to interact with real people. They don't learn the emotional intelligence that comes with interacting with real people. So their interactions are with artificial, well, they're artificial interactions because you're interacting with a person that's not really there. And it's teaching them... Say what? Sorry, there's definitely a physical impact because we're starting to see things here which educators are referring to as screen time syndrome. Okay. So kids who have been in that tablet phone age, when you're tilted down like this and your head's pointed down, you're looking at something, you're hunched over, your neck is bent, you're putting pressure on your throat and your vocal cords. You have kids that come through that have very little communication skills. When they are, their speech is very broken beyond what it should be and they have posture issues so even the physical side of things is there interesting nobody would get that from hey mom and dad bought me an ipad for christmas right yay the the choreographer at the the school my mom works for has talked a lot about that 
that the way that he has to teach and write moves for the class is different because this generation of, of children that have their head in the screen don't even move the same way. They don't have the posture. They don't have that uh, skeletal and, and muscular structure necessary for even performing the same duties that a prior generation had. I'm not about you guys, but if you see a kid have an iPad or a device taken away from them, they're so angry straight away. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like an addiction. That's like they've had the crack pipe taken away from them and they're flipping out. They just can't control their own emotions and their feelings. Yeah. Well, and speaking of not being able to control the TV and a tablet's one thing, but they've done studies on virtual reality. And I can't remember exactly what the age group is, but they uh, put children in virtual reality and had them play Simon Says, and they lose all impulse control. Whether Simon says it or not, you know, hop on one foot, touch your head, you know, spin around, they just do it. They just do whatever they're told. That's terrifying. They yeah, just wait till they've got an Oculus on and they're 30. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be problematic. <laughs> Very. We'll be with the old fellas and the old folks home trying to batten down the hatches while those young guys come at us with God knows what kind of technology. Yeah. Man, can you imagine that? This dude comes around the corner with an Oculus and a gun, and you're like, hey, hey, buddy, young Thundercat, can you see me? <laughs> nah, man, I was just playing this game. I wasn't even after you. Oh, yeah, you almost got shot, bro. Yeah, you, you, you got to have a demilitarized zone or something around you, man. This, this is a private property. That's that's funny. Hey, Drew, I have a question for you. Um, one of the things that we saw a lot here in the States reported from, from Australia was that during COVID, there was a huge crackdown. Huge crackdown on on your guys' society, on what you could do and what you couldn't. And to us, almost a tyrannical crackdown. Were the reports of what we were getting as far as police arresting people, um, not being allowed to question the narrative, being forced into, into camps and things like that, was all of that true? It was. The camp stuff was probably exacerbated a little bit. Okay. Um, the, the camps weren't built straight away. They were built towards the end of it, and they were used more so for people who were flying into Australia because we had a, a band globally on flights coming to Australia. We had to quarantine everyone. For the rest of it, absolutely. It's a level of tyrannical control I never thought I would ever experience in my lifetime, but it happened. Um. Americans in federal prison had more rights than what Australians do at that point. Like we had an hour a day of exercise time. We couldn't leave within certain number of kilometres from our house. We had uh, a curfew at nine o'clock. We couldn't go out beyond that time. We had port police, which was like our anti-terrorism unit, shooting tear gas canisters into people's backs and shooting people in the bag, in the back with 12-gauge beanbag rounds beating people with gun butts, really over-the-top, tyrannical control that you would never, ever expect to see in a Western country unfolded here. What does that do with as far as your perception and trust of your government? I have absolutely no trust at all anymore. And this is the biggest cognitive flip that's ever happened in my life. I grew up as someone who was in a uh, upper-middle-class family. So we weren't rich, we weren't poor, but we worked hard. I put myself through university. I went into the military for a stint. I worked in multiple things, all to try and improve myself. 
trusting the system. Being from a conservative family, I just thought that that's the way the system worked. And to see the system turn around and stomp people into the ground, it absolutely blew my perception of what my reality is. I couldn't believe what was going on. And that was scary in itself, but the scariest thing was seeing the majority of Australians toe the line and think it was good. Interesting. To justify police trampling people with horses who were just trying to voice their opinion against draconian lockdowns, people were cheering it on, hoping that people died. Wow. That's scary. Are there any reports of things that have transpired with police officers where they've had to come to terms with some of the things that they were doing during that time? Um, not really. There was a few police who quit the force over the mandates, very small in number. But we had a very small police force anyway. People don't want to be police in this state anymore um, over corruption issues, the things they have to deal with, what have you. But we've got a point now where our state police are so desperate for new recruits, Mm -hmm. they're contacting over 40,000 people who failed their application just to fill roles. Wow. That sounds like our military that's lowered the ASVAB uh, down to, like I think, like the 10%. Yeah, like in comparison... The American police forces in a lot of spaces, from my understanding, don't have the highest IQ requirements for entry or social skills or capabilities or anything along those lines. The Victorian one, and and broadly speaking Australian, is quite high. Psych evaluations, um, sit-down panels, multiple tests to get in. It's a very high and hard thing to get into to be a police officer in this country. And for them to drop all that and allow people who have failed tests or failed psych evaluations because they need to fill boots is really concerning because that tells me that there's a lot more people that have left the force than what they're what they're letting on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it's definitely not an upward motion to lower the standard. Definitely. There's no way that it's going in a good direction when you do that. I do want to give you props though, because you were telling the story that when, um, you know, cause you, you got the jab that the whole time you were doing it, you were saying, I'm under duress. I'm under duress. I'm under duress. That's a boss move because there, there was not very many people that pushed back. And, uh, I was able to get a, uh, a, the, the doctor's office that, that, that I go to, I got a, um, a medical exemption. So I didn't have to wear a mask and, and that kind of thing. And it helped, but it was the amount of social pressure you know, to, to wear a mask or get the vaccine or whatever was intense, like sweating bullets. Like everyone that I talked to that even, you know, questioned, why do I have to put a mask on to walk five feet to this table where I can take it off, you know, and eat for an hour? Uh, it, w- it was not an easy thing to do, whether it be just the fact that we have lower testosterone rates than we used to <laughs> or we've been conditioned. But um, to to even though you thought you had to do it the whole time to say, I'm under duress, this is not an act of of my own volition is, is pretty badass, Drew. Thanks. Well, it's the only thing I could really go to. It's, and like the saying is no one regrets not getting the jab. Yes. And the more and more people I speak to, there's more regrets out there, but we were in a, such a absolutely messed up position where it just wasn't social pressure. It was government pressure. It was workplace pressure. It was police force pressure. I honestly didn't see a possible out at that time. Now I think very differently. There's things that I probably could have done or should have done. What's happened's happened. Hopefully, long term, there's no serious health-based repercussions for me or my family. But it was a very that was probably easily the hardest time in my life. You know, I second what Christopher was saying because 
I don't think until you go against the narrative, you don't realize how much force is really coming at you to comply. Like I ended up having to go into the hospital when I got COVID and I had to contend with doctors. And I was at a point where I I didn't have my oxygen levels were down to like 70%. And they wanted me to give reasons for why I didn't want to take remdesivir. I didn't want to take their, their, their protocols. And I'm like, dude, I can't breathe. And you want me to use air to explain to you why I don't want what you're giving me. You're, I don't have the term for it. It's probably a Latin term for what you are, but I mean, (laughs) this is ridiculous. You know, they would want to contend with me back and forth. It takes a certain amount of what the Jewish people call chutzpah to be able to deal with that. And I didn't have, I didn't have even the phrasing like you were saying about being under duress. I'm like, that would have been great for me to deal with uh, before I got into the hospital for me to deal with some of the other restrictions that were placed on us. I'm able to use my size to kind of intimidate people into, I'm not about to put on a mask and you're not going to make me, you know, and they, after, after a couple back and forth, they went back down and that was hard, but to actually be in a place where I'm, I've got to say I'm under duress and that's the only way I'm taking it. And to not just be like, Oh, well I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, I salute you dude. Cause that's not an easy position to be in. And there were so many people that I noticed here in the States that just complied off the bat. If they said six feet, they went six and a half. If they said put on a mask, they put on two. I'm like, what are you doing? There are people I saw with masks in their cars. By themselves. By themselves. <laughs> right? God, we still say that, don't we? And I'm yeah. like, America, I think America had that really unique situation where I think in a lot of ways, your, your country is very polarized in a lot of, lot of ways. And the vaccine rollout really emphasized that where there wasn't really a middle camp. America's pretty much split down the middle, mm-hmm. like 50-50 or 60-40 in some cases. But either you went and got it, or you didn't, whereas Australia was in that really weird situation and it, and it reflected the numbers of the vaccine uptake, specifically in my state. The uptake started and all the elderly people went out and got it. Yep, cool, that's it. Didn't really tick off after that. As soon as they projected a few more deaths on the TV, crept up a little bit more. The majority of people didn't want it. It was only once mandates were put into effect where people would lose their jobs, their houses, they couldn't um, look after their families anymore. Real tangible threats to people's lives in how they could function in society. That's only when it happened. And the government were happy and joyous about, oh, we'll just keep mandating and it'll, it'll be fine. So the they link gave experiences. Us trinkets. They gave us trinkets for, for a block. Yeah, cheeseburgers. Right, right. I was like, so you gave us stuff that's going to kill us for the, <laughs> anyway. taking the stuff that's going to kill us. I was like, that's. That's funny. But it, it was scary because it's easy to just sit in a safe place and go, you know, the government's lying. They don't want what's good for you. But like me and my wife had conversations like, do we believe this enough that we'll lose our jobs? You know, it that's a really scary position to be in. Yeah, because they were talking about that for us. Like I work for one of the largest trucking company, shipping company in the United States. And when they were talking about mandating it, for truckers and then mandating it for companies over a certain amount. I'm like, I qualify on both. And I'm looking around like, I, if this goes, my livelihood goes. If I'm, am I really going to sit here and fight this? And that's a tough question. That's a tough spot to be in. 
I remember talking to Christopher going, if this don't work, man, we're going to have to go to Florida and you're going to have to catch snakes. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, once you kill them, I'll bag them and ship them away. But we uh, might have to go a whole other option here. I was not mad about I that plan. I was. <laughs> My Negro senses th- were on high alert. <laughs> I think it's easy for people to to think, yeah, I wouldn't do it. But it's hard unless you've been in someone's shoes or you've lived those experiences where like you guys had the ability for religious exemptions, medical exemptions. Those were flat out just banned in Australia. You don't get those. You have a social contract to get vaccinated. We didn't have the option of jumping states. All states were bringing this in. Mm. And in my situation, I thought, okay, he's going to mandate it. I can see it coming. I'll change careers. I've before I can walk into pretty much anything. I'm a capable guy. I'm intelligent. I'm fit. I can do it. Well, he just mandated every single job there was. There wasn't any job to go to. I was yeah. between a rock and a hard place. And for my wife, someone who worked incredibly hard on getting her career, that was a sore point. And then you have those those social pressures of how it's impacting your marriage and your family. And yeah, it's a really hard place to be in. And especially in this community, I don't think a lot of people appreciate it. Like at the end of the day, yeah, I made a shit choice for my own health. I'm first to admit that. Something I didn't want. But at the same time, I don't want people to feel sorry for me, but I want people to be able to recognize that a lot of people out there were coerced and put in a shit situation. Yeah, It's almost akin to blaming the rape victim Mm -hmm. in certain ways. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, it was bad. It was bad. I think that's one of the things that showed in our country when Drew was talking about how we're split down the middle. mm -hmm. I think one of the things that was evident to the powers that be where how much of the population will fight you on this and how much will comply. And I don't Mm -hmm. think that that was clearly demonstrated before, you know, we seem to have a lot of in the middle. I'm not sure, but that was a clear cut indicator. You've got this much of the population that if you say jump, they say how high and you've got this much that says, screw you. Now to that group, we're going to take away their guns (laughs) and then they'll drop. That'll be our next move. Well, that's the concern, isn't it? You, it's kind of put a flag on everyone's head who doesn't want to do what the government says all the time, right? Which you shouldn't have to anyway. But the danger is if this isn't the, the completely nefarious agenda of it being a ultimate depopulation weapon, it's just pinpointed all the targets for the, the cabal, the elites, the people that really run the world. They know who their enemies are now and they can target them far better than they could before. Yeah, because like you said, we did have the option to sign a religious exemption, but I was thinking about that, and I was like, so I'm signing a declaration of of faith, so it, it aligns me with this religion that is under fire, and in this declaration of faith, I am saying that I refuse to comply to government mandates. I am signing a paper declaring that I'm a terrorist, that's what mm-hmm. it is. It might get me out of this vaccine or this mask, but in the in the long term, I just signed myself up to, to be on their watch list. And a lot and of you've mentioned that before on the show, and I was earlier on um, listening to your show in the past couple of months. I heard you say that exact same story, and it rings so true. It's if you've had any kind of a means of opting out, generally you've had to sign something, mm-hmm. or you've gone onto a system. So you are very noticeable to them now. Yeah, for sure. One of the things you mentioned wanting to talk to us about was finding faith. So, and you said that you've kind of started that in the last couple of years. So 
how does all of these ridiculous changes and things that you see and 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 your your worldview shift kind of apply to or influence a building of faith or a changing of, of worldview? So like I mentioned before, my worldview of the system and faith in it completely collapsed. Mm-hmm. I've always been conspiracy minded, but generally about the fun things that people like to investigate, like early on, like UFOs, aliens, Bigfoot, all the things that are just interesting to research. And more and more over the last couple of years, it pointed to something far more sinister and eventually brought me to the terms of that there's satanic influence in the world. Okay. And that made me instantly have a gut feeling, if there's satanic influence, where's God? Why isn't God helping us? We're under the boot of oppression and no one's coming to save us. So that became a a battle in my own mind of what is the reality of the world and and what's my place in it. And for the longest time, especially during the height of COVID, I was actively looking for things, looking for signs, looking for something that to me would prove God's existence and something's real. And for the longest time, I tried to chase it and eventually got to the point where I thought, yeah, it's not real. No one's coming to save me. It's the world is is what it is. And within the last year, two significant events happened in my life that just proved to me that there's things that are happening and I'm put in certain places for a reason. The first of that was just a regular day at work. I walked down to the office, checked my little pigeonhole for notes of things from the admin staff, and I saw one of my parents out the front of the school. So I went out to have a chat with them how their child was going in, in their art classes. And as I was chatting to them, one of our students who can be a bit dysregulated and has a bit of a hard life ran out of the school, tried to run away. At that point, I saw he was running towards an, an open lane of highway cars just going down, 40 zone still, but cars moving fast enough to, to harm or hurt a kid. He ran straight through the traffic, no idea what was around him, blinkers on. I instinctively chased him and tackled him out of the way of a car. Wow. Barely, barely got through. Both of us could have been hit at any moment. That happened. And I kind of mulled it over, had a chat with my principal about what happened for the kids' safety and whatnot and did a report. And for the rest of the day, I thought to myself, is this a sign? Because that's not my normal routine to go down to the office each day and look for things in my pigeonhole. I usually go into my classroom and set things up. So I instantly did something in the morning that's out of my normal routine. Okay. Thought nothing of it, left it there. A week later, I was going for a run in my estate, gave my regular exercise in the afternoon. And I overheard what was like a domestic situation happening at one of the houses. And there was a father and a son with golf clubs, punching, hitting each other, a young guy in his early 20s. And they were really going at it, harming each other, beating absolute shit out of each other. Instead of calling the police or just moving on, my instinct was just to run towards it. Mm. I ran straight into it, got into the situation, raised my voice, told them to drop the golf clubs. And they did. They stopped. They looked at me. And I just explained to them, like, you can't be doing this. There's kids in a park here that see what's going on. You need to stop what you're doing. Like, you're a father and son, for heaven's sakes. What are you doing to each other? The father calmed down instantly, said thank you. He walked inside. And the young guy came over to me and just broke down, told me about all the things that were happening in his life. His mother had just died of cancer recently. There was disagreements happening in the household. His father was abusive. And he just dropped to the ground, sitting down, telling me all his woes in the world. And I sat there and I 
had a chat with him until his older brother arrived. But that for me was the ceiling moment that I was supposed to be there in that moment too. And I don't know what it was. There was a feeling that came over me after those situations. I don't know whether it's my own hubris as man being happy to be in a place to help people, but I felt like I was there for a reason. And to have it happen so close after such another significant event, mm-hmm. I think that's that's driving me towards the truth of what our reality is and that there is someone out there looking for us and guiding us. That's awesome. Those are Those are incredible stories. Especially when you hear that there's like, what is it, observer syndrome or whatever, that that a lot of times, whether it be due to how we're conditioned or the television, there's this weird social phenomenon that will just watch horrible things happen hmm. and not do anything. So, no, so not only were you put in those places, but you were triggered to actually inter, intervene and help people that were in trouble is is completely against the. Uh, the the flow of of culture and and what the elites want that that's awesome yeah the thing i got from i spoke to people like my wife was really helpful around this she's raised an anglican and she has faith and i'm like i said finding mine she was really supportive about it anyone else i spoke to the instant go-to was why would you put yourself at risk you could have got hit by the car or why would you try and break up a fight you don't know they could have had knives completely dismissing the fact that there was people who were in need that could have been horribly hurt, right? if not worse. That's nuts. That's fascinating, though, because I, th- I think we have that tendency, like you were saying, Christopher, to just observe. And then self-preservation or the myopic view of just worrying about ourselves as opposed to looking at two people um, or two two instances where other human beings could have been severely injured and not just like the people you involved with say like with the kid if the kid had gotten hit by a car there's a driver of that car that's going to be impacted by that you know and traumatized as well as the the kid uh and then in the instance where you you stepped in between the father and son again those are two people two human beings that are destroying each other and it's interesting that society has gotten to such a place that the assessment of getting involved in those altercations or the, those situations was, well, you could have been hurt. Why, why would you do that? You know, looking out for yourself, not realizing that as a, as a single race, a single species, we have a fiduciary responsibility to look out for each other. Like that should be one of the hallmarks of what makes us human. And it's sad to see how far we've fallen away from that collectively you know yeah the ego has driven people's inward so much that that the sense of community and others is completely obfuscated from society and and the psyche of what it is to be a part of it i think that's that's the benefit i'm finding in in finding faith is that you reach out to people and they're welcoming they want to talk to you about it they they're encouraging but they don't push you they they generally want to help and I don't see a lot of other areas in society where that's happening. Everything else in society is very centre-driven. It's driven on personal gain and personal tangible things. It's the collectivism. It's survival of the fittest. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all about you. Uno numo, number one. No one else. 
Right. Even in relationships, you see that. People are driven by their own needs, not what's good for the for the marriage, what's good for the couple, what's good for the kids. It's very egocentric. Right. And it's terribly detrimental. Like that's that's what we're told, you know, that that's how, how to survive. It's the underlying philosophy on, you know, scientific naturalism, but it doesn't work. It, it's horrible for everyone involved. No, even if we go off their own idea and their own model of how humans supposedly clawed their way up from the bottom of the food chain, that humans had to look out for each other. They had to help each other in order to survive. Could you imagine just kicking the weakest person on, and leaving them to the lions? That would happen so often that the human race would never have progressed. So right. somewhere we had to help each other. We had to band together. We had to see the weakest people in our society as needing support, needing help. They need to be uplifted. We need to see our own weaknesses in each other and notice that each other's strengths help us. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see in this community in particular, the podcasting community. I don't think there's a single podcast I've come across that I would put in a negative light. Everyone's so helpful. They they quick to encourage. They're quick to notice the things you're doing really well. They're quick to provide feedback. And that's the way that we should live as people. And we're seeing that generally an uptick in what you would consider the truth of movement or the people that are awake to things. We may be labelled as domestic terrorists or conspiracy theorists, whatever ad hominem attack they want to use. We are honestly the most accepting, compassionate people you will ever meet. Yeah, that's what we've experienced. Right. And we're pretty new to the game too. I think it's one of the things we try to also emulate, uh huh. You know, and, and offer back because it's so important. I mean, when you're when you're dealing with a satanic control matrix that's putting the screws to everybody, um, the the one thing that it really drives out is hope, right? And people start finding themselves in hopeless situations, uh, and it's easy to become callous when you're hopeless. And I think it's so important if we're going to talk about these things, if we're going to shine the light, so to speak, on the issues of our day, it's got to be to extend hope, to to rejuvenate hope in people, that it's not a lost cause. And it would be pointless to do that and not offer a compassionate environment to where other human beings could thrive. You know, it would be incongruent with what, we're trying to do as a whole, as a community. I don't know about you guys, but for someone, I think there's probably a lot of people that are in my type of situation where they've come from a background that's raised as a certain denomination, but not really practiced. That seems to be a really big thing in the Christian world. Mm -hmm. You say you are, you're born into it, but you don't actively do it. And then things happen in your life that you do see the reality of what the world is and you want to actively look into it. But there's the concerns around specifically if you are a truther or a conspiracy theorist, there's genuine concerns about, about scripture. Like I don't know what to do as someone who knows that history gets manipulated and changed and co-opted and used for nefarious purposes. Do you have any advice for me when it comes to scripture? You mean as far as like the reliability of scripture? Yeah, like how do I know that it hasn't been used or changed over time for nefarious purposes? <laughs> or do I just or do I just absorb it and read it, delve into it and see where it takes me? 
do I just go on that journey? Oh, man. Sorry, loaded question. That's what I was going to say. That is a loaded question. (laughs) It's a a heavy responsibility here. Um, A couple different things. Uh, Vody Bauckham is a a teacher, and he goes into authenticity of scripture. And uh, we've touched on it on, on a couple of our episodes, but we're not nearly as good as some of these other people. But one of the things that he says is that we have a reliable source of historical documents that are written by eyewitnesses and the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that tell of supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. And the people that wrote those uh, claim that their writings are divine and not human in origin. That's a mouthful and it's a ton to un- unpack. But there's there's several different ways of, of investigating the authenticity of Scripture. And... Um, you know, we know that how do I want to start? Historically, at least as far as we um try to measure the authenticity of an ancient text, the Bible far and away exceeds all of the expectations. Like uh Aristotle's poetics and uh like Homer's the Iliad and things like that don't come anywhere close to either the um one of the things we look at is how close to the original as far as a, a time scale that we have. And then we look at how many actual documents in, 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 that, in that time scale. So Homer's Iliad and Aristotle's Poetics are something like a thousand years after they were actually written. And we have a, a fraction of the, um, the number of copies of that as we do the Bible. I think the Bible we have is close to... 30 to 60 years after the originals. I mean, it is true. We don't have the originals, but we do have close to that. And um, thousands and thousands of original manuscripts or pieces of the manuscript. And that's not the, the entirety of it, but it does point to the fact that beyond any other historical document that we have to look at as humans, the Bible stands alone as being the most authentic, at least to what they were writing. So, so we do have that. It's not stupid based off of scientific reference and all the metrics that we use to measure historic documents. It's not stupid to believe that what the version of the Bible that we have today is authentic to when it was written. So, 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 so there's that. And then Chuck Missler goes into, he's, well, he used to be, he's, he's passed away now, but he is very big into information sciences. And um, he talks about how, from an information perspective, that the Bible functions as one integrated message system. And it was written using a technology called holography. It's the same type of technology that we use when we create holographic images. And one of the things that's interesting about that is it, is it spreads the message across the whole platform. Um, I don't know if you heard, I, I think I've talked about it on a different episode, but me and my brother used to copy DVDs, shamefully, <laughs> and, and we and put them on these hard drives. And he's way smarter than I am when it comes to technology. And he said, we can put, you know, 300 on this hard drive and 300 on this hard drive and 300 on this hard drive. But if, if one of the hard drives fails, then we lose all 300 of those, um, those movies. He said, what we can do instead is we can spread the information across all three. So all 900 DVDs are on all three hard drives. 
So that way, if we lose a hard drive, now we might lose some clarity to the, to the image, but we still have the whole movie. And that's the way that the Bible's written. That's why there's not, that's the genius of it from a divine perspective is that there's not a book on baptism. There's not a book on salvation. There's not a book on morality or what have you. And I think it's very possible that there might be missing books. You know, we have 66. It's a very suspicious number. You know, when we look into things, 66 books. And we know that um, in, in the writings of Paul in Corinthians, they're answering or he's answering questions that they had asked him. And they even reference other letters that he had written to the church in Corinth. So we know that there's other documents in that space. It, it, w- it would not harm my view of the Bible at all to find out that there are books that we don't have access to. But the beauty of the way that it was actually written is that might um, degrade the resolution of the message, but it doesn't do away with, with any part of it. So so those are a couple things. I I, I like Vody Bauckham's take on why we believe the Bible and Chuck Missler. His learn the Bible in 24 hours. Like if you're if you're interested, the way that he goes into it and the way that he pulls out the messages and how it uh, intertwines with physics and reality and time. And Chuck Missler's learn the Bible in 24 hours is unparalleled work, and it's it's free on YouTube. I, I highly recommend that. I would say, um, I, I think for me, what Christopher just alluded to is probably one of the linchpins for why I think we can put a, a fair degree of confidence in the historicity, history, historicity of scripture. And that is the fact that it was written in a way that anticipated hostile jamming. And it was written in a way that required integration, right? So if there were things that were changed, it would show up replicated throughout the entire book. It wouldn't just be, uh, one fact here was changed and that's going to cause all of this to fall apart because it is written almost as a tapestry, right? Then there's the part of the fact that scripture was in print, the, the Greek version of it was in print. What is that? Two centuries, 270 years. Yeah. So almost three centuries mm-hmm. um, in black and white, the old Testament before even Christ showed up. And what it would take to change that many copies is beyond human capacity, right? Yeah, and from what my own research, from it for it to go from Sanskrit, ancient Hebrew into Greek into Latin into what was would be considered modern day English, and to have very very little variation, but phraseology based on the language change, mm-hmm. that's that's what is kind of leading me to actually really dive into it and really look at it beyond a surface level. Right. Yeah. My next thing would be, I would say you have to test it. And I don't know a lot of Christians that would make that as a, a, a thing, you know, actually test it, see, see if it fails, but we're living in an age of spin. And if we were dealing with just about anything else, we would either say, buy it hook, line and sinker, resist it and just say that it's a complete total sham or prove it. Like those seem to be the only three options, really, that that there are. And I would say test it. See if it holds up. For the most part, from what I've seen, where there are contradictions, um, they're not real contradictions. 
there are opportunities for further understanding of the text, but the text doesn't contradict itself within itself. No, it seems like the contradictions appear more in, in the English translations. And the English understanding of those translations, you know, the, the way we think with an English mind. And that makes sense because English is such a, essentially it's a bastardized language. It's a combination of so many root languages that it's confusing to even speak English if you're trying to come at it from a, a foreign language perspective. It's right. confusing um, to speak English from an English perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless you know the code around it. Absolutely, right. yeah. It's it's challenging. And I remember there were times I would get mad at God and be like, why? Why couldn't you just write the Bible in English? It would be so much easier. <laughs> why would you choose to write in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek? Like, I'm trying to learn it. I, I need you to write it for me, Lord. I don't care about the rest of the folk. This is a personal <laughs> issue here. Like, maybe if you could have wrote it with some Ebonics, that would be good. I could really relate then. <laughs> but he, he didn't choose to write it that way. And so now I'm having to go through all of those types of things to, you know, try to understand it. So I, I could sympathize a bit with someone that's saying, hey, um, how do I know I can trust it? But I think that's a actually a issue that we all face. Mm-hmm. And I think God anticipated that. He knew that that was going to be a concern, especially living in a world of deception that we live in. And if God is the way that I think he is, or the entity is, whatever you want to refer to God as, he probably wants you to really question and look into it because if it brings you to that that end space where you understand and you are a true believer, maybe that's the purpose all along. Like we've all got different journeys. For someone, it might be an event that happens and they're sold on it straight away. They know it. They feel it. For others, it might be arduous hours of looking into it to finally come to a point where deep down they knew that's where they were leading them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say for also sure. don't be afraid of hitting some of those walls. Like for me, if if I hit walls where I don't understand this, or even if I found out that, let's say, going and predominantly reading the King James version, if I found out that the King that King James had altered significant portions of the original text as it was being translated into English, it's not going to invalidate my understanding of reality as far as I know. There's still evil. I know the evil's personified. I know that there's great wickedness that's going on. Like, it's not going to shake me to that level. I mean, we're going to have to work through some things. Don't get me wrong. But it's not going to cause me to upend my entire view of reality. And I think that for someone that's that's searching through that, there are core things that I'm sure you already have known and have accepted as real. And I would say, keep those. Even if you're going through this journey and you hit certain things, don't be afraid to hit those. Um, because I know people that are like, I can't handle having my feet in the air, right? I can't handle having, not knowing exactly where I'm supposed to put my foot on everything. And I'm like, yeah, but you can't always have your foot, both feet flat down. Sometimes you got one. Sometimes you're in transition. I mean, that's part of walking. You know, if we're walking, one foot's moving while the other one's planted and then vice versa. And that's how we we move through and journey through. And I think the same thing could be said for a spiritual journey. There'll be times when the feet are both planted firmly, and there'll be times where there's some transition, and, and you may not be sure. And I say that don't allow that to rock your... Don't allow it to, to shake your quote-unquote faith. Because at, there, there's no way for us to be... We're talking to, to, um, I was talking to Ryan... Ryan Dean uh, of a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago, and Ryan was talking about being a hundred percent certain of certain things. 
um, especially when it when it comes to the idea of God. And I was thinking about it the other day. If we're 100% certain about things, then there's no opportunity for us to grow in our faith because we're already 100%. So if growth is a part of the process, then it implies that we probably won't be 100% on things. And so even as you're reading through and on your journey, realize that there's going to be some stuff you might hit doubts, you might hit walls, you might hit things where I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense. That's okay. That's opportunity to work through and probably find something very fascinating, interesting, but don't allow it to be something that completely up upends your, your faith and your view of reality. But yeah. And ask, ask questions that don't make sense. I mean, Jason and I are here. Call Chris. We, we don't have, we by no <laughs> means do we have all the answers, but there's, I mean, even relatively recently, like maybe a month ago, Jason found this scripture and he's like, this actually doesn't make sense to me. You know, so we had to go into it and go, you know, what do you do with this? Does it actually measure measure up? Is it a translation issue? You know, what do we do with this? Because it's actually been a long journey for the two of us to get to where we are. Years and years of study and questions and fighting with each other. Not hard, but, you know, over like, what does this mean? How, what do we What do we do with this? Can we trust this? And when presented with new information, we got to go, well, if this is legitimate, how does this, you know, factor in? It's definitely been uh, a long journey for us. But I, I'd like to add, I know we're kind of just talking at you right now. The fact <laughs> that, that, I, that I, that one, intellectually, it's satisfying uh, to be able to, to look at this and go, I have good reason. I have, um, you know, the, the historicity, I have the different aspects of, of, of science and, and all of these things pointing to it, all of that's fine and good. But I also know that it's true because I've experienced it in my life. I've had moments of, um, uh, I was going to save some of this for my testimony episode, but I was in a domestic abuse, uh, issue with, with the woman that I was dating. And I ended up hiding on the back lot of my parents' property in, in a, in an old beat up Ford Taurus because I was sleeping there because at the moment it was the only time that it was, it was the only place that was safe. And I was too embarrassed to actually talk to my parents about what was going on. And Jason was asleep, didn't answer his phone. <laughs> but uh, so I was sleeping in the back seat, and then I just had God tapped me on the shoulder, woke me up. He goes, it's safe for you to go home now. And I went home, and sure enough, it was safe. I can't remember if she was gone or she was sleeping or whatever, and I was able to to to, to get warm in my house. Um, I also had another ins- instance. Uh, I had, I was upheaving my whole life because of some of these things and, and meeting Jason and, and coming to the realization that, okay, maybe the, maybe the Bible really is true. Maybe the way that I've been living doesn't align with, with this particular doctrine. So I had, I had moved out of a, uh, of a place that I still had to pay six months rent. And I, I, I ended up moving into the, um, the nursery at my parents' place. Cause I was like, you know, I just got to make these changes. If it's true, then the logical thing to do is then behave as though it is true. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm in the midst of this. So I don't have much money. I'm on my way home from church and I'm passing this coffee shop that was my favorite coffee shop. And I was like, Oh, coffee sounds really good. But I only had like $10 in my account at the time. Cause I'm paying rent for a place I'm not living and, and all of that. And so I, this voice said, get yourself a cup of coffee. It was nice, comforting. And I was like, no, that's all right. I'm going to be responsible. 
I'm just, I'm just going to drive past it. And he's like, no, get yourself a cup of coffee. I was like, no, it'll be fine. So I ride my motorcycle past the coffee shop and the tone of the voice changes, right? And he's no longer like, go on, Christopher, just get a cup of coffee. He's like, boy, go get a cup of coffee. And I was like, like it was, it's, it wasn't audible. It was internal, but there was such a shift. I was like, okay, I'll turn around and get a cup of coffee. So I turn around and go to the coffee shop and it was like, Nine o'clock in the morning, they were supposed to open at eight and the door's locked and the open sign's not even on. So now I'm like, all right, this God thing is a joke. Either that or you're just a a douchebag in the sky that likes playing games. Now I'm angry, right? I thought I was being obedient to this voice. I'm frustrated. Expletives may be flying out of my mouth as I'm walking back to the motorcycle and I go to put my helmet on. And right as I do that, this guy runs around the corner in the barista outfit. And he goes, I am so sorry. He's like, I, I wasn't able to make it here on time. If you want, if you were here for coffee, I'll get you whatever you want on the house. And I was like, all right, God, all that stuff I Touché, just said, God, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> but that, I've had little moments like that, that just that make it real on a, on a personal level. And people might dismiss it and be like, it's just chance. There is no way this internal voice says, turn around and go now. And it ends up being a free cup of coffee. Like, I mean, that that's crazy to think that that is just random circumstance. I think the meaningful things for me in this, this past journey that I've been going through is I've had my own moments of revelation where I've, I've seen and felt it. But at the same time, I'm really analytical. And like I said, I want to really delve into it to find out like it's a great position to be in to not know hundred percent of anything because yeah. you're driven to actually research it and to find out for yourself. Uh-huh. And the, the elephant in the room is there are satanic things happening in our world that we exist in. They're influencing society. They're negative. They're horrible. They don't have any good intention for us, but by their very own existence, the light has to exist as well because darkness cannot exist without light. Right. And that fills me with hope that if that's there, something better has got to be there as well. Yeah. I like that. That's awesome. Well, Drew, I for one could keep talking because this has been such a dope and enriching conversation that we've been having. But I think that's probably about all the time that you have for today. Yeah, good place to finish it. <laughs> yeah, well, th- that was good. Um, next time, let us know that you're going to ask a fully loaded question like that, <laughs> so we can prep for it and not 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 just talk. What did you say, Christopher? Add it, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. We we lost half our listenership. They, were like, they don't know. Yeah, I, I really see they don't know. But no, I mean, thanks for giving us your time. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Really enjoy uh, your show. I've only had a chance to listen to one episode, but I like that one enough uh, that I'm adding. I want to listen to some more. So please keep drawing out that type of content because I appreciate it. Um, I know like for us, some of the criticism we've gotten is, you know, your shows are long or they got all these details and all, but I eat that stuff up. Uh, Christopher's that that type as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so, if you don't hear anybody else say it, thanks for putting out well articulated documented content right that's huge and uh if you're ever on another show and you're talking and you're like 
These people are not going to be able to appreciate this. I'm going to lose the audience. Forget about it. Lose the audience. <laughs> say what you got to say. Right? Because there's people like me that are like eating that up going, finally, somebody will say the details of it. Like that's so critical in this space. So yeah. thanks, man. And and one more time, uh, tell our listeners where they can find you. Yeah, Drew Misson from Your Missing the Point podcast. You can find me on your usual podcatchers. Also check me out on uh, Conspiracy Theater 3000 with Andy Rouse and Moral Bob. We've just put out our first two episodes for a breakdown of They Live by John Carpenter and a watch-along commentary, which you'll get a good laugh at as our reactions to the film. And I'm also in a podcast called The Homeroom Educating Educators, where we try to help about families navigate the educational system. Awesome. Thank you. And again, if you have any questions, I mean, not even just the Bible, but we love getting into to difficult questions and, and searching things out. So we're here for you, man. Absolutely. Yeah, great. I'll have to get you guys on at some point to tackle some Marvel stuff with me. Okay, that'd be, that'd fun. be fun. Yeah, you goals with that. Sure. Yeah, doing awesome. Thank you. Well, you have a good one, sir. We will have you back on, I'm sure. Hopefully, uh, you know what? We can actually say this legitimately in the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> hey, you take care, Drew. All right. See you, man. All right, bye, guys. See ya. Everybody, it's closing time. You don't gotta go home, but you can't stay here.